Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 25 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. Thank you so much for downloading this. Wherever you get your podcast from, we really do appreciate each and every one of you that take the time to listen to us. I am the twisted genius, Dean Ayers, joined as ever by my esteemed co-host, sports columnist, not communist, Liam Happ. Liam, how are you doing? How am I doing, Dean? I am falling apart by the wayside and I'm exposing myself as the utter fast that I always was for the last 18 months. Oh, wait, no, that's Brexit. I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. Excellent. And um, a little bit of politics there. We called politics because, well, this is probably going to uh, go up a little bit later. But we, yeah, we're recording this on a day that everyone just basically sat on social media and watched things fall apart with a grin on their face. Um... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I'm, I knew you were a communist. I am a communist. <laughs> I told you I was a sports communist. And if you're wondering who that was, I'll let Dean introduce him. But uh, basically, he he told us before the show. He said, you know, when you when you introduce me and we do the old preamble and all that, he said, he said, don't make a big deal about what I used to do. You know, they, he's he's very humble. He doesn't like to talk about it. So Dean and I will brag on his behalf. It's the fucking editor of Powerslam magazine. The reason why Dean and I are such big wrestling fans, and pretty much everyone else in Britain, basically, it is the edit of PS Magazine. He's here with us. I'm so excited. Christmas come early. I'm excited, Dean. Can you tell? He is, he is a man who I've known for many, many years. And we used to have many in-depth conversations on the telephone where I'm sure he really just wanted me to shut up so he could get on with editing his magazine. <laughs> I am very pleased to welcome Finn Martin. Finn, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing fabulous, and thank you so much for having me on your show. And you're right, Dean. You know, you just took up so much of my time. I'm amazed <laughs> I ever got that magazine out. Uh, and then, uh, and then, of course, Hammerlock, Hammerlock Wrestling had a few uh, a few bits of coverage from uh, from your magazine. And yeah. I, I, I do have a confession to make. But I always remember there was a time you came to the Castle Hall in Hartford, and. Uh, and the uh, the magazine article said that, you know, you're asking me where it was. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's, it's just off this road and you'll find it no problem. And I wasn't being very helpful, generally because I'd never been there before. I didn't drive and I had no fucking idea how to get there because I got a lift with Doug Williams. Um, so that's about 20 years too late. That's my apology to you for uh, for not allowing you to find the way to the Castle Hall Hartford for a magnificent show from Hablock Wrestling. But anyway, that's the past. What what are you doing these days after it? What's, what's in... Finn Martin's world after Power Slam. Uh, well, I'm doing podcasts each week for Inside the Ropes, uh, as hopefully people know. Uh, right for WrestleTalk magazine, which is bi-monthly. I'm sure, or at least hope people are aware of that. So, uh, so yeah, I'm really enjoying both of those tasks. Um, probably going to return. Well, I am going to return to the world of book writing next year um, after basically 18 months. Off that, I did three books after Power Slam ended, uh, progressing through the Power Slam years and the Power Slam interviews, volume one and volume two. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back to writing about wrestling full time again early next year. I've been on with 
other things this year that have not been wrestling related that have been very time consuming, which I shan't bore people with. Uh, but yeah, looking forward to getting back to uh, writing about wrestling full time again uh, in, well, probably just a few weeks, actually. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of busy, but uh, not too busy to appear on this podcast. Ah, bless you. Um, I mean, that's the thing you said about those interviews. Power Slam got the interview. Got you, you were doing shoot interviews before shoot interviews were a thing. Well, I always remember. I want to. Uh, did you ever see? You must have seen this back in the day, Dean. And Liam, you are probably aware of it as well. And to me, the first proper shoot video interview, or at least the first one I was aware of, was looking for Mr. Gilbert, which I believe was yes. Bob Barnett. Yes, I remember. I had that tape. I remember Bob Barnett well, yes. And the production on it was pretty ropey, but it was just eye-opening. It was, this was sort of, I mean, the internet existed back then, but I didn't have it and very few people had it. So, and certainly broadband was like 10 years off. So back then you actually had to buy VHS videotapes to watch these things. And I remember ordering that uh, videotape and just being just like astounded by how revealing it was as Gilbert talked in depth about his entire career in a completely open shoot fashion with Mr. Barnett. And um, so, I mean, he was kind of head of Superstars Wrestling Power Slam. We didn't really go, you know, we were still a little bit, you know, dancing around kayfabe a bit at this point. Probably not until the famous Chris Jericho interview in 1999 that we did our first fully open uh, interview with a wrestler about how the business was. But many of the interviews prior to then, they would like, for instance, you'll remember the, the one I did with Shane Douglas in early 96, it would have been. And that was yep. quite a big one for the magazine at the time. And that was not strictly speaking. I mean, we sort of observed kayfabe, but sort of not really. Um, so it was it was kind of a different way of approaching things um, that was certainly more progressive and forward thinking than other wrestling magazines at the time, but wasn't full, you know, uh, we weren't a totally kayfabe free zone at that point, but we were getting there. So we were getting there. But yeah, I just want to mention the, uh, the looking for Mr. Gilbert. Mr. Gilbert, of course, was hot stuff. Eddie Gilbert, who was a highly underrated talent back in the day. Um, and um, yeah, if you haven't seen it, if that still exists, I'm not sure if that videotape still exists, but I think it would still hold up really well or not videotape, no one has them anymore. Uh, that shoot interview still exists. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, I would recommend you do so. You know what? A, a video, a VHS videotape of that probably exists somewhere in the dark recesses of my parents' house. But what, <laughs> whether, whether it's uh, covered in mould or playable is another matter entirely. But um, yeah, that was that was a very very interesting, very interesting, as you say, eye-opening interview. Listen up, slap nuts. That's right. This is Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one, and you're listening to because WCW. Now choke on that. So, we uh, we contacted you. We are we we asked you to um, about you know if you'd be interested in in, uh, in coming onto this podcast and and you have chosen uh, a, sp- a specific show. You've chosen WCW Bash at the Beach '97. What what made you choose that one? Well, I was at the Ocean Center in Daytona Beach, Florida, for the show. Um, so, I mean, I do have fond memories of being there live. 
And I feel that it was, I felt at the time that it was a good show and I watched it again yesterday and I thought it held up pretty well. So I thought it was a good choice um, for that reason, because I was there, yep. uh, but also because WCW gets a lot of hate, doesn't it? Lots of people bury WCW because of the way it ended. Uh, and, you know, the last sort of two, two and a half years of its existence were pretty miserable. Uh, I mean, fans would just run off in droves until finally, of course, it closed in March of 2001 when WWF or WWFE, as it was then, bought it out. If you transport yourself, if you whisk yourself back in time to July of 97, WCW was riding high. Whoa. I mean, it was it was hotter than WWF at the time. WWF had had a really good year rebuilding, but was still behind, still lagging behind WCW in the ratings war. And WCW was uh, outdrawing it on pay-per-view most of the time, doing really good attendances. The whole product felt hot and it felt like it had room for growth as well so i chose it firstly because i was there but secondly because it's going to give us all three of us or at least all i hope all three of us certainly me anyway an opportunity to say something nice about wcw which doesn't happen often enough yeah bollocks will we <laughs> <laughs> i'm well, sure i'll be, find it well what do i expect what, what can you expect from a communist <laughs> <laughs> so so did you go over there bef before or after the announcement of Dennis Rodman or did you make the decision to go out there I should say um I can't, I really can't remember um I mean I know if back then because I was doing the long hours on the magazine it would have to fit in with your deadline so you could actually take a couple of days off few days out of the office and do something um which would fit in with getting the magazine out on time. So uh, I think it was because of the timing. Uh, Colin Bowman, who was, um, who you remember, Dean. I remember uh, Colin very well. Yeah, he was uh, the editor of WCW magazine at the time. Uh, was actually, we were in business partners as well at the time. And uh, we knew each other really well. We'd known each other for, since 92. Um, so he was going along. He lived in Orlando at the time, or near Orlando. So he put me up. So it just all worked out really well uh, because he was going there uh, and I could just tag along. He got me um, obviously press credentials. So I got in. Um, so, I mean, that was it really. Yeah. I mean, I was only in Florida for a couple of days. I went for bash at the beach and for Monday nitro the following night in Orlando. Um, so yeah, just the timing of it was good. The location was perfect. Uh, I can't remember whether or not I booked it before or after the announcement that Dennis Rodman would be involved. But regardless, I would have gone anyway. Yeah, cool, excellent. I've, yeah, I've, I've just had I've just had a, a very random thought regarding the history of, of Power Slam. I just because today we're we're recording this on the, on the fifteenth of November, which is uh, our mutual friend Alex Shane's birthday. Happy birthday if you're listening. And I've just realised I when you talk about videotapes as well, I used to be a tape trader many, many years ago before I got into the wrestling business. I used to advertise that I would well, I was a tape trader in the pages of Power Slam or maybe even Superstars of Wrestling, the predecessor. Yeah. One one of the people who responded to that advert was a fifteen year old Alex Shane. Oh wow. We became we became friends from there. He then was uh 
wanting to go to Hamlock School of Wrestling for a free trial training session, but his dad wouldn't let him go on his own. He rang me to see if I'd go with him, which I did. And from there, Alex Shane became a wrestler. I realised it was far too much physical work for me and decided not to and kept in touch with them and, and then became ring announcer and it went from there. So if it wasn't for Power Slam, who knows? Well, maybe, yeah. I mean, I think that did facilitate uh, the entry to pro wrestling for a lot of people. Uh, but you got to figure if you wanted it enough, you know, maybe you would have found a way. I don't know, because back then it was difficult, wasn't it, to find out this information. So Definitely. I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, I'm glad that, well, I mean, I guess you can either thank me, Dean, or you can blame me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's let's uh, crack on with, with WCW Bash at the Beach 97. So uh, we start with a recap of the NWO running right over the WCW babyfaces, most notably our main event babyfaces of Lex Luger and the Giant. And as we've established, we're coming from Daytona Beach, Florida. Um Tony Shivan, now we we love we love l- listening to the opening gambit of Tony Shivani on pay-per-view. And tonight he calls our main event one of the biggest wrestling matches in the history of our sport. Uh, at least he didn't call it the greatest. But I guess you know this was a very significant match as far as as far as getting casual eyes on the product go. We'll we'll go into that later when we get to the main event. Um, His commentary partners are Dusty Rhodes and Bobby Heenan, um, and they also speculate about who Diamond Dallas Page's mystery tag team partner tonight will be. Shivani then says that tonight will be the first time Dennis Rodman steps inside a wrestling ring, even though the recap of clips that they showed literally 90 seconds ago show Rodman inside a wrestling ring, dropping an elbow on someone. The greatest Um, contradiction in the history of our great sport. But uh, hey, we're, we're less than three minutes into the show and it's time for our opening match. So, you know, not bad going WCW, not bad going at all. And our first match is Wrath and Mortis with James Vandenberg versus Glacier and Ernest the Cat Miller. Um, James Vandenberg. Now, he was he was in Smoky Mountain before then, wasn't he? Um, yeah, Daryl Van Horn. Daryl Van Horn, that was it. I was trying to remember the name. I remember his promo that you absolutely loved where he said he had a degree in Egyptology and necrophilia, but said it so quickly people didn't catch it. He was absolutely brilliant in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, and then he introduced Prince Carice. The mummy. <laughs> That's it? right. Yes. I mean, people think that, the, you know, that was it wasn't the Yeti. Yeti, it was the Yeti. Yeti. People think the Yeti was like the first mummy. In like that era, no, Prince Carice was. Yeah, I'd forgotten about Prince Carice. Presumably. Heaven forbid you wrestle a blow up doll. Someone's done it. (laughs) It it has uh, happened on a a kid like us, had an inflatable doll lookalike of himself because he was injured at an IPW show. Yes, and and the former head honcho of Smoky Man in wrestling would find that to be the biggest insult to ever happen to his beloved professional <laughs> wrestling. That's right. Yeah, the same guy who gave us Prince Carice and the gangsters. <laughs> Fucking hilarious, isn't it? When, when, when you go over his actual history with a fine-tooth comb and some of the things Jim Cornette actually does choose to piss and moan about. It's, okay there, little buddy. <laughs> oh, dear. I, I did I did meet um, 
I think it was called James Mitchell when he was in ECW. I did have the pleasure of meeting him. He was one of the nicest blokes you could ever meet. The um, sinister minister. Sinister minister, yes. Yes. So, um, so here we go. It's our first match. It's probably not going to be a technical classic. Uh, Glacier's look is straight out of Mortal Kombat, which obviously was a hugely popular video game of the era. Um, and Ernest Cat Miller is portrayed at this point in time as a serious wrestler and not the comedic genius that he turned into later on. Um, the story of this feud was that Vandenberg and Mortis were unexplained ghosts from Glacier's past. Um, the match starts fast. All four men are brawling before the bell even rings while uh, Glacier's fake snow is still falling. Mortis is Chris Canyon under a mask before he got a more prominent role. Raph is Brian Clark, best known as uh, Adam Bomb in the WWF and briefly Hammerlock Wrestling uh, prior to this point in time. So um, after a fast start for the babyfaces, Mortis tags out to Raph, who show, slows the pace of the match down to take the heat out of the martial artists. He lands an impressive-looking rolling dive from the apron to the floor on Glacier. Raph then places a chair against Glacier's head while he's leaning against the ring post. Mortis hits a sidekick, which clatters the chair between Glacier's head and the ring post in a spot clearly inspired by ECW. After what Shivani describes simply as a double manoeuvre, the heels get a near fall on the undefeated Glacier, but Miller makes the save. The heels are dominating, getting quite a few cheers from the crowd. Mortis misses a moonsault. Glacier struggles to his corner, but Miller jumps in anyway, levels both opponents with karate kicks in a spot that is designed to showcase his skills from his previous sport. Uh, Glacier reverses a DDT, makes a cover, but Vandenberg puts a chain around Mortis's foot. After distracting Glacier, Vandenberg eats a kick to knock him off the apron, but Glacier then falls foul to the chain-assisted kick from Mortis, which gives the heels a win and ends Glacier's undefeated streak. Can I just say, I was there live, and they worked this match out spot for spot in advance. They went through it in slow motion. So I was sat there watching it. I was obviously aware that wrestlers did this, but I'd never seen this happen before. So I'd seen it before the fans were allowed in, in (laughs) slow motion. And uh, I was like, why are they doing this? And someone said, oh, it's Ernest Miller. He doesn't really have much experience. So they don't want him to look foolish. So they're doing this, which I thought was a very wise precaution. Uh, I think at the time, this was something that was, I mean, I know they did this with like celebrity matches and stuff. Uh, Like if, you know, Lawrence Taylor was coming in, for the match with Bam Bam Bigelow at WrestleMania 11 or other matches where you would have people who didn't really know what they were doing, this would happen. But I still think this was a rarity at the time for people to go through the match, do like a, a rehearsal in slow-mo. On the night, I thought the match, I thought the match did everything it was supposed to do. It was a, it was just a, an opener. Uh, it wasn't supposed to deliver too much. I thought Rath and Mortis were tremendous selling Miller's kicks. I mean, Miller's kicks did look pretty good. Mm. And let's put that down to the selling of, of, of particularly Mortis, who we know was an amazing talent. And I think even Rath looked all right. Um, you know, it was very much of the era, the match. I mean, you couldn't, re- I don't think you could really put a match like that on today. I don't know whether people would, would eat it up like they did in Daytona Beach. But I thought for what they set out to achieve and what was not like a frivolous match. No one was really meant to take it that seriously. How could you take characters like this seriously? I I quite enjoyed it. And I thought it was quite a gutsy way of WCW to open the show with a baby face loss. 
yeah, while the uh, the the result was a bit of a surprise, and yeah, I mean, we we always go into the art of the opener here, and we always like really like to delve in depth of what makes a match work in that first slot uh, more more than anything else that could go anywhere else on the card. Um, yeah, I've got, I've got to agree in one aspect is that just about everything else about it was was pretty awesome, and it, it holds up watching it on the network. We also go into a lot of detail here about certain wrestlers, especially in WCW, uh, that we, we were calling them the, the mortar to the bricks, the workhorses, and you know Chris Canyons were right at the top of that list throughout WCW's tenure. Uh, I, th- I, th- I think you can stick Raph Brian Clark in there as well. He's he's more than capable enough. Uh, and 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 these two guys are, have have babysat Ray Lloyd and Ernest Miller through this, and the, and the rehearsals worked nicely. That 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 you were there, Finn. That that crowd was popping nicely for it. Uh, the the result in the end, you know, I suppose for storyline continuance, and we have seen some great openers finish with a heel. The, the one that sticks in the top of my mind is Owen Hart beating Bret Hart at the start of. Uh, WrestleMania 20. It can be done. It's not. It's not a death knell to a good opener. Uh, but yeah, I was a huge fan of it. What, what's most fascinating about this to me is that it was. While it didn't have the success of the cruiserweight division, this was part of what seemed to be Eric Bischoff's philosophy of categorizing his roster, almost as if to try and ensure there was less resentment about the fact that Hulk Hogan and his friends and, and, and the big guys were, were going to be on top to, uh, until kingdom come. Uh, he would have a cruiserweight division who worked with each other and brought their own little niche to it. And this was another attempt to bring this whole video game inspired, you know, the, these outlandish characters in masks. And, and, and they really they really tried to make a go of it. It didn't really work. But, you know, this match was good. I have a couple of other memories. And obviously everyone was a big fan of, of Mortis and who Mortis evolved into. And as Dean says, we fucking love Ernest the Cat Miller on this show, even though his best was yet to come when he started challenging everybody and running away from Scott Norton. But that's for, that's another run for another time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I I, I thought, you know, I, I'd go and say this was much better than it had any right to be to me. And the, uh, the, the only thing that seemed odd, I mean, obviously, as, as you said, Finn, you know, you've got the experienced heels carrying the greener opponents to, to the match, to you know, a very passable match. It just seemed a bit odd that they had so much of the offense and still won, because usually, you know, you'll get the heels on the offense and then the baby face uh, comes around to win in, in, in the end. But I think you know, it's probably because of the experience levels. But I think the other thing to bear in mind with this is you've got Dennis Rodman on your main event. There's a very good chance that you you've got people who aren't, either aren't wrestling fans at all or are very casual wrestling fans buying this pay-per-view out of sheer curiosity. I mean, I always remember um, I got a a cousin of mine who wasn't a wrestling fan at all and um, he was a big basketball fan and he'd heard about this and and when um, when his family came to visit my family the one of the things he said is, have you got that match on tape? And we sat down and we watched it because he wanted to see it. So as far as an opener goes, you've got four huge larger than life colorful characters and you know it harks me back to the i've said this before but the old the old saying that my mentor the late andre baker always used to say you know is wrestling has got to be larger than life because if you wanted to see people who look like your next door neighbor having a fight you'd go to the pub instead so this is you know this is a 
this was a big, all singing, all dancing, very colourful, very larger than life opener. Yeah, not only that, but did you notice um, how well the green baby faces were working that hot crowd? Uh, maybe, maybe not masterfully, but the, the the effort was there. Like after every move, they would be pumping their fists and turning to the hard camera or to a particularly rowdy section of the crowd. So they had that bit down pat, and that is always this is a thing you really want to see in places like NXT and 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 other like up and comers. You know, if you're still learning how the the mechanics of a complex match and what you do is very basic and you fear that it's gonna come across a little contrived and your facial expressions are still far too focused on doing your job rather than getting into character, uh, take every opportunity, every breather to appeal to the crowd. That will buy you some time. That will keep the fans on your side. And they did a really good job of covering it. wasn't just the rehearsals and having two good hands opposite them and a manager outside, an experienced referee. They had all these things there to protect them, but you have to give credit. They they put in their own effort as far as making sure they, were, they weren't hung out to dry. Yeah. Um, incidentally, one, one thing to note is that the storyline here, which you'd seen Glacier feuding with Wrath and Mortis over the past few pay-per-views, uh, was suddenly dropped because apparently the WCW creative team just couldn't think of how to wrap things up. So uh, we never thought, we never did find out what the past connection between them all was. Maybe they drove the Hummer together. I don't know. Ah, <laughs> uh, you beat it, wasn't, wasn't this the, uh, the Blood Runs Cold? Yes. Saga? Yes. I remember, yeah, it just kind of, yeah, as you say, like the Hummer storyline, it just didn't have a conclusion. <laughs> just petered out, that was that, yeah. Um, next up, we have uh, DDP in the WCWWrestling.com suite. He's with his dad, apparently, and he's being asked a question by someone with the username of I Love Cows. Second match is WCW Cruiserweight Championships on the line as Chris Jericho defends against... Uh, a man who's called on the captions and by, by the commentators as Ultimate Dragon. Obviously, we know him better as Ultimo Dragon. Um, he gets spooked by his own pyrotechnics, which is great. Um, Jericho is still a classic, come on, white meat babyface here. Um, it's worth noting these two had a tremendous match in uh, war. The, was it wrestle, Wrestling and Romance, I believe, wasn't it? Wars I think that's Romance. what it was called at the time, yeah, and then they changed yeah. it to uh, Wrestle Association R, ah, didn't they? I think someone pointed out how ridiculous the name was. <laughs> yes. But um, it will always be Wrestling and Romance in, in our hearts. <laughs> um, but, yeah, they had a tremendous match on the same day that Sabu wrestled the dirt bike kid in London in the Walthamstow Assembly Hall in 1995. Wow. Um, and that match got Jericho signed to ECW and Paul Heyman saw a tape of it. Yes, I do remember the match. It was, it was again, what we were just talking about VHS, but it was a bit of a VHS classic, wasn't it, back then? Yeah, it was one of those that people heard about and wanted to see, and and as you say, it did the rounds, definitely. Um, so this is a fast-paced start, as you'd expect. A pair of simultaneous drop kicks slows the pace uh, in a, a precursor to the mid-2000s classic indie standoff. Um, Dragon reigns in a flurry of kicks at Jericho's chest and midsection. Jericho counters a Hurricane Rana attempt with a double powerbomb and a senton for a two-count. He gets another two-count with a moonsault body block. He's going for the win at every opportunity, but Dragon keeps kicking out and Jericho is starting to look frustrated. Uh, Jericho attempts a drop 
kick Dragon off the top to the floor, but he misses by a mile. However, Shivani covers it very well in commentary, saying that Dragon took evasive action. Um, it's still Jericho in charge of the match until the top rope splash is countered by Dragon as Jericho's face meets Dragon's boot. Um, later, Dragon is thrown to the floor. Jericho jumps off the top to the floor, but Dragon cuts him off with a drop kick in what is a pretty spectacular spot for the time. Um, Jericho regains momentum with a snap suplex to the floor and goes for his trademark topek on Hilo, but splats on the floor. Dragon then lands his acai moonsault, and both men are laying flat out. Uh, Jericho counters a handspring elbow into the corner with a waist lock into La Magistral Cradle, which is countered in turn by Dragon. Lots and lots of quick pinfall attempts follow. Both men fall to the floor, and Enzigiri lays Jericho out. Dragon tries to suplex him back in, but this is also countered. A Quabrada gets a two-count for Jericho. A second Quabrada attempt is countered by a Dragon drop kick, which is just a little off. Dragon then goes for the Dragon Sleeper, but this is blocked by Jericho. Uh, the story here, which the commentators aren't quite picking up enough, is how well they know each other, hence all the counters. Uh, Jer- Dragon gets a two-count with a Moonsault. Jericho goes for a Tiger Driver, which Dragon counters into a Hurricane Rana, which Jericho, in turn, counters into a Sunset Flip for the one, two, three. Yeah, on, on the night, um, lots of boring chants. Fans really weren't into it, uh, as you could see from the... I think I think WCW did the crowd making a lot better than WWF at the time. And it did feel like there was some interest in the arena. But when I was there, there really wasn't. Um, So, I mean, that's props to WCW's production department for making it appear that more people were into it than were. You could see that Jericho was growing very frustrated as the match was progressing because he's trying to pump up the crowd and pretty much failing for the most part. I thought it was a disjointed match. Um, some of it was really, the timing on a lot of it was really dodgy. I thought they rushed through a lot of the spots as well. Um, some of them were very well executed. And I think overall, the match was a minor success. I think if it had, if it had, if it had the atmosphere that they desired, it would have been viewed differently to how it is. But that's often the case with wrestling isn't it i mean the atmosphere is is a huge part of the success of any match um so yeah i thought the wrestle association our wrestle and romance match they had i have fonder memories of that than i do of this match which i felt you know didn't really i didn't think they excelled and i just thought they should have calmed it down a bit it was like as if they were going frustrated with the lack of response so they thought, right, we've got to speed this up. We've got to just turn up the pace here to try and get the fans into this. And fans did respond to some of the moves, and some of it was spectacular. Uh, but overall, I don't think the audience was that into it. And um, the great flaw, of course, was Jericho's, as you said, white meat babyface character. And it wasn't until I think it was December of that year that they finally turned him. Uh, I'm sure you both remember the match that Jericho had with Guerrero, Eddie Guerrero, at Super Brawl that year. And that was really flat as well. Again, because it was two baby faces opposing each other rather than a clearly defined face and heel. Yeah. Which, in order, you know, the WCW audiences responded far better to heel versus face matches than face versus face matches, uh, as evidenced here. So. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a welcome... It, what I liked about this show, and this, this is something I'm sure we'll 
be mentioning throughout this podcast is that this match was very different from the opener. Uh, and then the following match was very different from this match. So you were given lots of variation. So the fact that it was different to what we just saw and was different from what we were about to see, I think stands in better stead than if it was like a WWE match where essentially almost everyone wrestles the same way. Mm. So for that reason, you know, I didn't, I, I thought it was all right, but I, I, I was hoping it would be better. I think one factor when you're saying about the, the, WAR match in Japan that you know that, that was better than this one, and I think one big factor in that was simply that the crowd are more accepting and more responsive in Japan because they you know, they they welcome that kind of style, and Dragon was a was a star over there. Well, that's true, but Ult- uh, Ultimate or Ultimo Dragon, ha- he had had matches in WCW previously um, that had gotten over much better than this one. Um, so, I mean, I remember writing at the time that Dragon's a guy who has had some success, has had success in WCW, and his matches had been well-received, uh, but they put him with Jericho, and there wasn't really that emotional connection there. Uh, and I think a lot of that, again, was because it was it was a face-versus-face uh, arrangement, uh, and if we had somebody who was really healing it up, then people might have got into it a lot more than they did. Yeah, I mean, heel Jericho, especially the the, the great angle with uh, Dean Malenko dressing as Cyclope. Um, I can't remember which pay-per-view that was now. But Slambury that, 98. Thank you. But you know, <laughs> that was the absolute pinnacle of, of heel Jericho in WCW, I think. And that, yes. that showed, as you say, Finn, that put some characters into it and people respond. Yeah, I mean, he knew. I remember when we did the 99 interview, I remember talking to him about this, that fans just weren't into his matches as a babyface, or at least some of his matches as a babyface. And he was like, he was well aware of this, and he had wanted to turn heel for quite some time before he did. So, yeah, there was the the, the feud with uh, Boras Di Malenko. Uh, prior to that, there have been the matches with uh, Juventud Guerrero as well. Mm-hmm. I think, didn't Jericho at one point wear... Hoovy's mask as like a trophy around his neck after... Yes. He had yeah, trophies collects... after every feud, yeah. Yeah, he collects yeah. trophies, yeah. He had a fake yeah. leg for Rey Mysterio's leg because he put him on the shelf for Mysterio's, like, I, I think it was his 21st of 63 knee surgeries, which is <laughs> what started right, yeah. the heel turn. So he had he had a fake leg for Mysterio. He had Prince Iokea's stupid outfit. He had Hoovy's mask. It was, it was all really good. Um, I have to just ask, first off, Finn, did, did you just, earlier, did you praise WCW production? That has to uh, be a first. Well, I did praise it for the sound and the fact that I remember being there and it was felt like you could hear a pin drop. But when I watched this yesterday, I watched the show again on the WWE Network, it felt like people were into parts of it. So, yeah, I was just I was just praising the sound. Yeah, so I'll be allowed good. to do that. Yeah, of, of course. You are. It's just weird to hear someone praise those WCW production. Although, to be fair, we're probably going to do that again a little bit later when we get the uh, NWO style vignettes, which always well received. But uh, yeah, WCW production has, has cocked up so many times. It's we should we should really like lay emphasis on when they get something right. I suppose. Uh, <laughs> secondly. You guys touched upon what made this match go flat, and I think I can offer some insight into this because for me, yeah, that it did absolutely nothing for me. It was two guys going out and doing wrestling holds, and as good as Chris Jericho and Ultimate Dragon are, 
uh, you know, in the nineties, are two of the best in the world at putting together wrestling moves. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's not what people want. The wrestling moves are the the cake, and you need an icing on that cake. Um, for me, it wasn't even so much the fact that they were both baby faces. It didn't help. But I'll give you a good example. Do you remember when we covered Wrestle War '92, Dean? Oh, how can we forget Wrestle War '92? The cruiserweight titles, short-lived. Bill Watts murdered predecessor, the light heavyweight title. Brian Pillman defends against Tom Zink, and they got a good, they had a good match, and they got a good reaction out of the crowd. Uh, they had a narrative. They yes. had a story. They were both baby faces, but it didn't mean they just both went out there like a fire pro wrestling sim, as much as I love that game. Um, they went out, and they did the... They know each other so well, hold for hold thing that you, you see all the time. But there was tension in it. There were reactions on their faces. M- meanwhile, when, when Jericho and Dragon did their thing in that process, uh, they just went straight to the next sequence of spots. It was just moves, 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 moves. And we're, you know when we get to the main event and we see two guys make the crowd go nuts over an arm drag contest, you're going to see what matters. And it's not so much what moves are being and put out there or how fast or how smoothly. So uh, that was the big problem for me. And they did absolutely nothing to fix it. It was very technically sound. I, I looked up the Observer. I go back onto the old Observers. Dave Meltzer gave this four and a quarter stars, I believe. He very big. And he was very high on Ultimo Dragon, obviously. But... Yeah, a technical body of work is one of many things you need. And when you only have that, that's where things like vanilla midgets and stuff like that is coined and and used against them later on. Uh, Thankfully, Jericho would shove it down everyone at WCW's throats. And and Dragon went back to where he was a star in Japan. But for this match, it was two guys going out, doing holds, 1-1. And... No, you, you need more. And they could have easily done that. They could have, you know, you have the thing out process, maybe maybe Jericho slaps Dragon. And something like that, if they'd have just like had a bit of a falling out in the middle of the match because of competitive spirit, that would have hooked it. This crowd was hot. This crowd was into their wrestling. They just weren't into bland one-dimensional wrestling. And it yeah. seems taboo to accuse two world-class guys like this of bland one-dimensional wrestling. But hey, it's possible. And if they just added a little bit of flavour like in the first five minutes, that would have given them enough rope to pull the crowd in to the finishing sequence, which, you know, with their skill levels, it was where things really stepped up a bit. But they didn't do it. I've also got to say... Uh... I have often talked about WCW's crowd miking, and while they they have seemingly made a quiet crowd seem noisier, and this is something that I think I mentioned when I, I was writing my my notes about the main event, I've always said that they they never seem when when the crowds are hot, they never seem to have the when you're watching at home the volume and the energy never seems to come through the screen in the same way that like the dub it would do in the WWF. I've, I've always noticed that. And it's always interesting to hear what you said about the crowd when it's the opposite way around. But I would imagine that that crowd were going absolutely nuts during the main event, but it didn't always come across to me. No, I think that, I think that's a fair, fair point. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, comparatively, if we if we if you contrast it with the Dragon versus Jericho match, they were. But if you look at what was going on in WWF 
in 98, the height of the Attitude Era, it, it hit you like a lump hammer, didn't it? Just exactly, the, yeah. You know, it really did. I mean, you know, the reactions that Austin, we reviewed Kenny, Kenny McIntosh and I for Inside the Ropes, we reviewed 20-year-old episodes of Sunday Night Heat every week. And it's just astounding how over that product is and just how um, electric the crowd is and just how they're into... I mean, the oddities were just like this joke act. They were just... People were like so... People were almost as into the oddities. I know it's a different reaction because it's a fun sort of we're into this and it's a joke and we're not really taking it seriously. But fans were really into the oddities. Almost... The reaction was almost as loud for the oddities as it is now for a main event act in WWE. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's incredible. It's, I mean, it's worth going back to the network and just watching the entrance to an Odyssey's match from, say, you know, August 98, just to, just to witness how over they were. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's like my, my memory of, for example, you hear the just the breaking glass of, of Stone Cold Steve Austin's music and this wall of, of sound would come through your screen. And it, yeah, it just, it just never, it never seemed to come through the screen with WCW like it did in WWF. I think that was the comparison. Yeah. The, the, you know, it, yeah, it just didn't have that. Oomph. And, and well, well, we'll get onto the main event later on because I, I'd imagine the, the live would have been absolutely, absolutely phenomenal. Um, anyway, let, let's, uh, let's move on with the, the pay-per-view because we have thrown to uh, mean Gene who is shilling his hotline costing $1.59 per minute. And that was 20 bloody years ago. Um, <laughs> God knows what it would cost now. If such a thing he was existed. loudly booed, wasn't he? <laughs> Good. Just slimy bastard. Every, every time. Man. I remember there was a time where I think it was Crusher Blackwell, the former AWA world champion, died, and he basically said about here, here, phoned the hotline to hear about a former a former world champion dying, and I can't remember how, but they somehow basically tried to make out that it was Ric Flair, which was amazing. Um, good old Mean Gene. But anyway, he then wanders over to ringside to speak with Raven, who is um sitting in the front row accompanied by Stevie Richards. Raven cuts a, a Raven promo, which Mean Gene calls Edgar Allan Poe gibberish. Stevie then talks about whether Raven is DDP's partner. Um, and then he talks about Raven's big announcement tomorrow night on Nitro and gets cuffed around the head by uh, Raven for his trouble. And we move on to match number three, which uh, is Masahiro Chono and the Great Muta versus the Steiner brothers. Something tells me that the Steiners won't be taking the same liberties that they took at WrestleMania 92 with Japanese opponents. Um Chono and Muta are billed as representing the NWO, which they did over in New Japan at the time. Um, they come out to the NWO jobber music, which does make me sad. Um, the Steiners then come out to their god-awful WCW Slam Jam theme tune, which, which also makes me sad. Um, and <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that whole album, Jesus Christ. Well, I get uh, Barry, Barry Wyndham's uh, entrance. Maybe that wasn't too bad. Maybe that was the best of a 
dreadful. Nah, bump. I hated that too. That, yeah, because that was pretty much ripping off um, Lagrange, wasn't it? That's it's <laughs> taking off a, a real. So yeah, it's big and tall, mean and lean. He likes to print counterfeit greens. Was uh, me and John Lister's <laughs> alternative lyrics to that. <laughs> anyway, um, the uh, the pervy cameraman who gets employment at every single World Cup football tournament finds two women with big tits in the crowd applauding the Steiners. Um, Rick and Scott are wearing matching shiny PVC singlets, which look disturbingly tight. Um, this match is being positioned as a match that the Steiners must win if they want to get a shot at the tag team champions, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. Oh, don't get me started on that. Uh, Go on. So basically, 1997 was the year of the Steiners winning matches to become the number one contenders to the tag team titles at some point in the future. That was the tag team division that year, and it had never come. Or there'd be a, a screw job when they did wrestle the outsiders. But yeah, it's almost every pay-per-view. And we will do some more 96. Because we've only done Starcade 97 before this. We have. And that yeah. was our very first episode. And when we do a bit more 97, you'll see you'll see that the Steiner brothers versus whoever in a number one contenders tag team match. Yeah. Uh, number one contendership was more of a title than the belts that Hall and Nash were just carrying around as, as toys at, at this point. So uh, it's another fast start until the double top rope clothesline sends the heels scattering to the floor. Boots the face of a charging Scott, turns the tide for the heels until Scott catches Muta in a double underhook bomb and follows it up with a press slam. Rick gets tagged in. Muta bails to the floor. Shono tags in. He levels Rick with his trademark Yakuza kick, or Mafia kick, as Shivani calls it, which I guess would be correct in, the, in a roundabout way. Um, Shono nearly kills Scott with an electric chair drop, because he kind of nearly drops him on his head. Um, Mutar lands a handspring elbow into the corner. Scott really doesn't seem to be interested in selling for his Japanese foes too much. Um... A top rope belly-to-belly suplex on Mutar allows Scott to tag Rick in, who delivers belly-to-belly suplexes on both opponents. Scott goes up top, but is cut off by Chono, which allows Mutar to execute a snappy top rope Hurricane Rana. A hamstring elbow attempt, but on Rick, is countered with a German suplex. Uh, with the referee admonishing Chono for pulling him away from a pinfall account, a double-team top rope DDT on Mutar gives the Steiners the victory. Uh, what were your thoughts and your memories of this one, Finn? Um, my memories of it were that it was really slow uh, and that the ending was pretty hot, but not much happened for like, you know, like the first sort of eight minutes or so. I think the match lasted about 11 and a half minutes. So, um, yeah, my memories of it were that it was really slow. I, I watching it again yesterday on the network, I enjoyed it more than I did on the night but I think my expectations on the night were unrealistic. Watching it again now, all four men just look a bit knackered, don't they? They all just look like, you know, we know these guys have had hard careers. <laughs> They've all suffered a lot of injuries. Um, I mean, you know, this is 21 years ago. I mean, it was in comparison, sort of looking back, they don't seem that old. So I think they all looked a lot older than they actually were just due to what they put themselves through into the rest in the wrestling ring. So, um, I mean, you could see all four could really go if they wanted to, but they sort of took the night off for most of the match. And I think by this point, the Steiners, uh, it was almost like foreshadowing Brock Lesnar, where Brock Lesnar will just do 
German suplexes and a couple of other things. <laughs> Seemed like the Steiners have got to a point where, you know what, we're over. We can just get by on those big moves and we don't really have to do anything else. We don't have to do any fills in between or transitions or any of that other stuff that we used to have to do when we like were younger. Selling. Like selling. Like selling. Oh, yes. <laughs> These real basic things. We'll just go in there and just muscle these Japanese guys around. And uh, if the crowd isn't into it, we'll just fling it, fling them through the air. And I've got to say, it was it was better than I remembered. Um, but you kind of think, well, it could have been better. And if this were to take place in New Japan, it would have been better than this. Muta or Muto, uh, Muta here. He had like a reputation for taking the night off when he came over to WCW, when he came over to America. And he didn't totally take the night off, but I felt like he could have done a lot more. Chono's best work, and I'm sure you both noticed this, was arguing with a fan wearing, I believe it was a Sid Vicious t-shirt at ringside. He went over and argued with him three times. Yep. I Chono didn't spot that. <laughs> you did. I think he was wearing a Sid Vicious t-shirt. Uh, and and that is where Scott Steiner got it from in later years as Big Papa Pump. But, I mean, back then, the WCW merchandise, about the NWO stuff, was so terrible that the images of the people, you, you know, you kind of they needed to put a name under it for you to know who it was. <laughs> you know? So, uh, so Chona went out and started arguing with this guy three times. I mean, he put more effort into that than he did the whole rest of the match combined. Um, but I mean, it was it was I think it picked up a bit towards the end um, would have been nice if it was better, um, because these were four guys who, you know, let's face it, five years earlier were dynamite, weren't they? And you yeah. can see that they they all still had enough athletic ability. And obviously they knew the psychology and they knew everything. I mean, Chono and Muto were working heel and they were doing it fairly well. I thought they could have done more to get a, a louder response from the audience. Uh, but these guys are, were real talents. So on one hand, you think, well, it should have been better. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, I suppose it was all right. And these guys, you know, by this point had uh, racked up a lot of injuries. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, as I said at the, at the beginning, they all looked a bit knackered. Also, the, the WCW crowd never, ever seemed all that bothered or all that interested when when any of the big name new japan guys came over they had no reason to no you're right absolutely and they never promoted them enough i mean why didn't they i mean they would have access to the footage why didn't they do like video packages and stuff of the guys i never really understood that at all uh liam i think you might have an answer to that question <laughs> uh would the answer possibly be the title of this amazing podcast Indeed, the answer I yes. have on my card is because WCW. Subtle yes. as a sledgehammer, Dean. Subtle as a sledgehammer. <laughs> um, yeah, I've got to agree with Finn. This, this, it is quite a sad sight watching this match, knowing what these four men used to be. Um, I've, I've got a note, though. While you, you gave Rick, Scott and Muta, you know, a telling off that they deserved, Mr. Martin. But also, Chono is no stranger to dogging it in the States. Uh, and he's had I'm some... I'm so rights. glad you finished that sentence, by the way. <laughs> oh, my God. I thought it was just a Nitro watch-alongs where we did dogging jokes and comparing <laughs> Hulk Hogan to Jimmy Savile. But we're bringing it over here, fair play. No, um, 
but yeah, Chono had had some right stinkers in WCW, and yeah, he while Muta was working on and off, and he tried here and there, and it definitely weren't his best night, but he was kind of trying. Chono was just abysmal, and it it reminded me in some aspects of uh, Halloween Havoc '92 that we oh, did with Jesus Big Dave Christ. Doyle. Oh, yes. but, um Chono v Rude. Oh my God. Yeah, so so it was a battle between the jet lagged and the juiced, really. This one. <laughs> I mean, at least Chono had an excuse at Halloween having night two. He'd just come off the the famous Steve Austin neck injury, hadn't he? He shouldn't probably shouldn't have even been in the ring that night. Yeah, there was definitely some other underlying issues. We went. It's definitely worth for anyone who's listened to this hasn't listened to that. Have another look back because, like with this episode, we've got uh, Dave Doyle, MMA columnist extraordinaire, and he was there live in Philadelphia that night. Uh, just like we've got someone who's live at Bash at the Beach '97 here with us, and um, yeah, there, there was more to it. Just, just the. The, the the chemistry or lack thereof and the way it got worse as the match progressed and the and the, and the frustration and the facials there was there was none of that here the four of them seemed pretty happy with their work but yeah it was it was such a half speed thing and yeah as, as you mentioned they they popped big for the finish even though it was one of the worst most contrived distracting the referee spots I've ever seen uh, that spike DDT is always going to get a pop and that ties in perfectly with your point that the Steiners knew exactly what they had to do at minimum to to get you know out of the ring and into the pay window so <laughs> yeah this this one was, but one thing I will say as, as sad as it was you touched upon this thing and you know it is quite sad seeing these two world-class Japanese wrestlers you know two of the best uh, that 90s Japan had to offer coming out as bland NWO foot soldiers to the NWO B team. That makeup Muta was wearing, just NWO. And oh, Jesus Christ. He, he looked like a fan. And a fan would put that on their face. You know, oh, look, I'm with the new old order. Um, I'm going to put a weird theory out there for you guys now because everyone takes a dump on the fact that after Eric Bischoff joined the NWO, pretty much everyone did. And they say it lost a lot of the cool factor that they had early on. I would argue that even though they didn't do it properly, and obviously they got too hung up in remaining cool heels and almost Bischoff at one point went to rebrand the WCW as the new old order. Uh, I thought it was the right thing to do to just, once they got the upper hand and they had the boss and they had the titles and they were pretty much running roughshod those WCW in late 96, you make everyone join them and, and hop on the bandwagon. Because if there's one thing that's going to establish them as a heels and make people boo them and make people cheer when guys like Sting and DDP rise up and take them on, it's the fact that they've become the monster that they were fighting. Uh, so... It's a weird thing that no one really thinks of. They just think, oh, too many people in the NWO. Well, for Hill Heat, I think it was the right thing to do. But as we know, they just certain people just got a bit greedy and and, and didn't want to let go of having the the dominant uh, narrative of a heel and yet all the popularity of a babyface at the same time. Yeah. And, And also, I mean, if you look at the Bullet Club, I mean, that's had pretty damn good longevity because its members have changed. We've got completely different members to what we had when Prince Devitt was the original leader. So whereas with the NWO, they tried to change it around and keep it going. I think they did pretty well to keep it going as long as they did. But when you're saying when your core guys are on top, it's only going to have a certain shelf life. I mean, look at DX. I mean, DX, they 
were pretty much finished by the end of 98. So they only really had like one good year. Uh, and they were super over for a while, weren't they? Yeah. Definitely, yeah. The hottest, hottest act to go in WWF, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, you know, it's, it's the same with anything. This uh, this Brexit club, you know, they keep changing the members there. That gimmick's rolling and rolling. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah. Just, I just hope that Brexit suddenly doesn't make a massive comeback and really makes sense next week when we publish this. <laughs> well, when I say that, we know it's not going to happen. So every joke will be relevant. Every dig will still be funny. Absolutely. We um, we move on to match number four. It is uh, a six-man me- six man tag from our friends in Mexico as Juventud Guerrera, Hector Garza and Liz Mark Jr. take on the trio of La Parca, Psychosis and Villano 4. So uh, the heel team, La Parca's team, are managed by Sonny Ono, just to define them as heels and to give Sonny Ono something to do. Um, Mike Tanay explains the rules of a Lucha Libre six-man tag, and much like when he tried to give a background to Japanese wrestling in the Cruiserweight title match, he just gets heen and taking the piss out of him. Um, as you expect with the Lucha Trios match, it's non-stop action throughout with the personnel changing frequently. Uh, another Brexit joke can be uh, inserted here, if you like, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Garza misses a moonsault from the apron to the floor on Villano, but lands on his feet. He then hits a tilt-a-whirl backbreaker on Villano as he charges in on Gaza. Back in the ring, Hoovy climbs onto La Parca's shoulders for a head scissors takedown. They both spill to the floor where Sonny Ono misses Hoovy with a karate kick and instead accidentally hits La Parca. Uh, Psychosis has to act as peacemaker between them. Uh, Lismark Jr. comes in. The crowd then pop for a spectacular triple toe play by the faces onto the heels on the floor. Psychosis gets a two count with a snap sunset bomb from the top to the floor which takes the commentator his breath away um, and nearly breaks his neck. Um, Psychosis misses a top rope splash, which triggers a sequence of everyone missing top rope maneuvers. Lismark lands a plancha onto to the floor onto Villano, which triggers a series of dives. La Parker with a corkscrew plancha onto Lismark. Then Hoovy uses Garza as a launch pad for a massively high elevation dive onto La Parker, which gets another huge pop from the crowd. Psychosis gets back body dropped from the inside to the floor by Gaza on top of his teammates and finally Gaza takes all five compatriots out with a corkscrew plancher from the top rope to the floor. Villano 5 then comes down and switches place with Villano 4 on uh, for a two count on Gaza. Villano 5 accidentally clotheslines Psychosis out of the ring. Gaza lands a standing moonsault on Villano 5 to pick up the win for the babyfaces. So a complete spot fist, but I, I thought it was a fun match and a, a bit of relief from the other matches because of the totally different style, as you touched on earlier, Finn. Yeah, I mean, uh, you mentioned earlier about Bobby Heenan um, taking the piss, and uh, he remarked uh, to Tanay, I believe it was, luchadors sounds like a pair of tight pants you wear in a bullfight. Yes, he did. <laughs> so... Yeah, Bobby uh, seemed to be aware with the fairies on commentary for much of the show. Uh, certainly was here. Um, yeah, it was. I remember on the night, um, it seemed like a really sloppy match. But watching it again, it didn't seem like it was really that sloppy at all. And uh, it was all action. Um, some of it looked terrific. I mean, most of it actually looked really good. Um, welcome change of pace. From the previous match with the uh, with the massive guys who could ha- who were struggling to move, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I mean I enjoyed it. I don't have any sort of real in depth analysis to offer because 
what can you really say about a match like this? Uh, I'm sure Liam will enlighten me. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> Thanks, mate. It, it's it's like a six-man uh, lucha match. Um, I think if there'd been the pro, the only th- the thing that kind of let it down was you've got a lot of guys out there who, if you know who they are, they're sort of over. But the WCW audience probably had difficulty distinguish distinguishing between the people who were in the ring probably didn't really know, probably couldn't pick, uh, put a name uh, to anyone in that match. Maybe La Parker, because he was the guy uh, with the uh, with the skeleton outfit. That's yeah. right, isn't it? La Parker was the one yes. with the skeleton yes. outfit. Yeah. So, I mean, La Parker was probably the, probably, and he had also the gimmick of being the chairman, didn't he, of WCW for a while? Yeah. So, uh, that's right. That, was, that came after this, but yeah, that was his gimmick. Yeah, he'd come okay. out and play air guitar or play chair guitar, wasn't it? Yeah. Right, okay. I can still do a very mean La Parker strut, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, if you if you'd had just two guys in the ring, each one would have been able to do more character stuff, and I think that's the theme of this podcast. Each one would have had more time to do character stuff that would have got the fans more into this match than they were. Instead, we had six guys in there who were just racing to get their spots in. So people were popping for the big dives but weren't really into the body of the match because it was mostly a blur. Mm. So I think it would have been, had there just been La Parker and say Juvi Guerrera in there, I think it would have been, I think the fans would have paid more attention to it than they did. Um, On the night, it really felt like people treated it as intermission. And if you looked into the audience, a lot of people, I think just went and got another drink or something. There was quite a few empty seats on camera. So I think people really... You know, treated it as the piss break match, yeah. which is a shame because of the amount of effort that went into it. Yeah, I'll, I'll say this one thing uh, compared to the other match on this card that we've kind of gone in two footed on for similar reasons, which is Jericho versus Ultimate Dragon. Um, there's less onus on these six men to deliver a, a narrative. They, I mean, yeah, they, they are the, you know, piss break is a very crude term. It's, it's not inaccurate, but it's a crude term. I think it's, you, you often on a card, you have a breather match. Even for people hell-bent on watching every match, it's important to have a breather. To that end, I'm actually surprised they didn't put this on after Benoit versus Sullivan which was always going to be a nutty uh, physical match with a lot of storyline relevance where even your most casual WCW fan knew the deal with them over the last 12 months. So I thought it would be the perfect to maybe put after that to give them a breather leading into what you'd consider the marquee matches of the, of the card. Yeah, the, the interesting, another thing you mentioned, Finn, is like with the, the when blown spots happen, that's always been one of the, I suppose, the charms of Lucha Libre is that when you wrestle at that faster pace and you are able to improvise to that degree, it's a lot easier to cover up blown spots. So when there was a bit of botching or a bit of missed cues, they just just kept going as if it was all part of the plan. As far as character, if they were going to have character development in this sort of a match, as I said earlier, there was a there was definitely a concerted effort by Eric Bischoff to categorise his undercard and to keep them just doing certain things, which entertained, but kept them very much in their place. And these guys were always meant to be just the, the cruiserweights, the luchadors who had this sort of a match. But if you, I don't know if you guys remember, sold out 1998, which I hope we cover like, sometime soon. We will cover eventually. It's a very good show, straight after Starcade 97. 
there was an eight-man lucha match, and it was very similar to what we see here. But at the end of it, La Parker, who's on the losing side, and as Dean mentioned, is by this point between the two, he became the chairman. He's now the chairman. He brings his chair out, sold out 98, and as a sore loser, he belts all four of the victorious team with the chair. Then decides he's going to hit all three of his teammates as well. He unfolds a chair, stands on it, plays air guitar, and he's the most over-fucking person in WCW on that night. He's getting, you listen back to it, he's getting a pop that is up there with the, the Sting Hogan angle and, and Flair and Bret Hart having a really good main event. Uh, and that's all it takes. But obviously on this night, they... They weren't supposed to have that. You'd expect that from your cruiserweight champion and a guy, Bischoff, always claimed he, had, he saw as a superstar babyface, which was pr- pretty disingenuous. And you remember Finn that Jericho said as much in that interview that uh, whenever they were big on his, his babyface status, it seemed pretty disingenuous. Uh, but if they, if they really were going to have that opinion, you'd expect them to back it up by putting a bit more of the agents or whatever, or even... Jericho or Dragon themselves into the match but they're doing a bunch of moves when you'd want to see a bit more bit more tension a bit more of a story D6 yeah just let them do it but as I said I'm just surprised they didn't put it somewhere else where the breather would have been a bit more welcome and, and the contrast would have been a bit more telling because otherwise as you said Finn uh, there's there's a lot of contrast on this card yeah yeah absolutely yeah absolutely yeah I think you're right I think uh, but although in saying that Liam um Fans were up for the next match. I'm getting ahead of myself here. I don't want to stand on Dean's toes. <laughs> well, it, the, it did serve as a breather in one sense, at least. Yes. But, yeah. So uh, that you know leads us to the next match, Dean. I will pass it back to you. But, but also, I was just going to say, as as well, thinking about you know casual wrestling fans to watch a six-man tag like that with these colourful masked characters from Mexico flying all over the place and doing these daredevil moves that you've never seen in your life. That again is going to be something that you know may maybe draw in the uh, draw in the casual fan. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, uh, I want to go back to what, what Liam was saying at the sold-out match. I remember that match as well. I believe that was the opener that night, wasn't it, Liam? It may have been, or at least very early on, maybe first or second. Yeah, which was the perfect spot for those guys because mm-hmm. the crowd hadn't seen anything by that point. They'd watched Wildcat Willie and the dark matches, and they were like, you know, Matt Wildcat Willie was WCW's mascot, and uh, and they watched all that, and they were ready. You know, they were ready for the show to begin. So whatever they put on the first match, particularly if there's a lot of action, generally they would react favorably to it. But I do remember that match from sold out and it was red hot. Absolutely right. It, it was the opener. Just looks up. Yeah. Okay. Hoovy, Hoovy, Super Calo, Liz Mark Jr. And Chavo Guerrero Jr. Defeated La Parker Psychosis, Silver King and El Dandy. That is, mm-hmm. uh, so that's five out of these six, I think. Or um, four out of six. Hoovy, one, two, three, four. four no, ga- no Gaza, no Viano. Yeah, uh, but yeah. So I mean, that was one of the problems. Is it's one thing to say, yeah, your casual fan looks at this the first time they see it. I remember when casual fan, friends of mine were watching the uh, the minis in '97 because the, the WF had minis all the Ooh. time. The, what's his uh, Max Mini and El Torito and things like that. Uh, and you see it as that, f- that that first time thing, and it serves perfectly. Everyone was was 
falling over themselves for the for the comedy spots and the fast pace and it's just so different but when you realize that they're going to do this basically on the undercard of every pay-per-view uh with with no sort of development you're like well you know I don't care anymore. And that, yeah. that was the thing with a lot of these guys. They, they would wheel them out in the same capacity every time. And yeah. Bisch, Bischoff really hoped that would contain them and keep them content. Uh, and when La Parker, just with a bit of hijinks with a chair, uh, pushed himself forward. You know, everyone was digging the costumes. Everyone was digging, like, the, the fast-paced action. But they needed something a little bit more. They weren't, you know, you you want to follow the story. You want to follow the progress of things. And that was one of the rare times where you saw that in a in, in a lucha match on a on a major WCW show. So yeah. they're all over the parker, and obviously they did absolutely nothing with it. <laughs> right, let's let's move on to to match number five, which is uh, the career match between Kevin Sullivan and Chris Benoit. So this. This feud obviously is kind of infamous in wrestling circles now because it ended up where with with Chris Benoit and and woman Nancy Sullivan, Kevin Sullivan's legit wife, getting together. What was remind me? What was the background of this this in the storyline at least? So um, they've been feuding at this point. They've been feuding for over a year. It started in '96. He had the Kevin Sullivan. Brian Pillman feud, which came from the debris of all the hills trying to unite to end Hulkamania and being made to look like idiots. So they started to have friction with each other. Um, and the book, head booker, Kevin Sullivan, wanted to do something with Pillman. Pillman ended up actually leaving with his loose cannon stuff, which we'll definitely get into when we get like when we do a show closer around those sort of things, or maybe Super Bowl six. We'll have to really dig in deep on that. But for now, uh, Sullivan decided to try and carry on, but with Benoit, someone who could give him that sort of good mid-card, stiff, physical feud, because uh, he was done with Hogan at that point, obviously. And I'm guessing because he wanted to replicate. The edgy shoot element, getting the, the very small internet fan base into the uh, the whole aspect of it that he was looking for with Pillman. This is where, after that, a few matches, you the whole thing began with uh, Nancy Sullivan, woman. And if I remember correctly, he would put in the... So, and I've really got... I'm hoping the Nitro watch-alongs refresh my intimate memory of every happening on every Nitro. But if I remember correctly, they would... Uh, I think Southern even had Benoit and Nancy like travel together and get deliberately sp- yeah. spotted in public together with the implication being that, yeah, even though woman is on TV associated as a horseman and she, she had long been a horseman valet with Miss Elizabeth feuding against uh, macho man. Then they brought out the stuff. Oh, she's actually married to Sullivan. And that's where they went to get the thing with Benoit's the main guy in the feud and the guy who steals her uh, like first hand. Um, and it carried on and carried on and carried on. And we're here about 30 months after that famous Great American Bash 96 Fools Count Anywhere match. And to be honest, I f- honestly think the only reason they've, ex- they've revived it slash extended it to here and done a career match is because the man in charge, the man who, for the most part, his power is reduced to being a toady for Hulk Hogan's whimsy, uh, Decides. Oh, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna use my power for my own benefit for once, and 
have my last match, you know, because he's, he's getting on at this point. I'll have my last match here in Florida, where I'm most famous. Uh, and I'll have the big match with a in in a, in a format that I know everyone's going to go crazy about because you know as, as as Finn alluded to, there was a big pop for this match and they, there always was because they went out two for now. But yeah, otherwise the, the, the feud run its course and we're just getting it anyway, presumably just to give Kevin Sullivan a send off because he's the boss. Fair yeah, well. I mean from what from what I understood at the time. WCW, as you said, Sullivan was the booker of record, but of course Bischoff was above him and so was Hogan. But Sullivan was the head booker of record, I believe, at the time. Um, and um, But WCW had been wanting him to retire as an in-ring performer for at least a year. So it was specified as a, a loser retires from WCW match. So at least they did that. You know, because normally about then it was like, loser must retire. And of course, Sullivan did end up returning to WCW in 99, I believe it was. Yes. But I mean, he did honor the retirement for a couple of years, which in, in that era wasn't bad. In wrestling, <laughs> it's an eternity. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this was a hell of a, I thought this was a pretty good, pretty damn good brawl. Probably lasted a bit long, uh, but I mean, it was a good brawl. That's what I thought. You have, you have, have you described, Dean, yet what exactly happened in the match? Well, um, okay, well, yeah, um, (laughs) Sullivan is accompanied by Jacqueline. She seems to be arguing with him during the entrance, uh, and they also have an uncharacteristically serious-looking Jimmy Hart. Um, We're told by uh, Dave Penzer, who who incidentally was uh, our guest on episode 23, if you want to check back that on on the Because WCW archives, that, as you've said, the loser can never wrestle in WCW again. Um, Starts out as a flat-out brawl that is soon out on the floor. Benoit gets drilled into a guardrail by Jacqueline, and he gets double-teamed by them both till he picks Jacqueline up and launches her into Sullivan. They start brawling up the aisle. They start fighting on the beach set at the entranceway. Uh, Benoit gets nailed across the head and the back with a surfboard before getting a deck chair thrown at him. Uh, and they basically destroy the set, the beach hut, the lifeguard tower. They're all down. But whenever Benoit is getting an advantage, Jacqueline nails him with something and, and puts the advantage back in Sullivan's court. Um, Sullivan becomes one of the few people in wrestling history to actually successfully execute a pile driver on the floor during a match. Um, they finally make it back in, into the ring. They're not in the ring for long. And Benoit gets rammed into the ring post, crotched on the guardrail right in front of Raven. Um, they then start biting each other, which the commentators put over as showing the importance of the high stakes of this match. Benoit gets the crippler crossface on Sullivan, but he won't tap out. Benoit clamps it on again, but Sullivan still won't quit. Uh, he starts laying in punches and chops, but Sullivan gets a second wind. He ties Benoit up in the tree of woe and lands two big running knees to the midsection. Uh, Jacqueline then brings in a wooden chair, which Sullivan wants to use, but Jacqueline wants to use it herself. She ends up hitting Sullivan over the head with it. It breaks into several pieces. She then walks out. Benoit frees himself from the tree of woe, climbs to the top, lands his diving headbutt and wins the match to retire Kevin Sullivan. And the odd thing to me is that there's no ceremony or applause. Kevin Sullivan walks off to no fanfare. And I guess it would be very different today because... The, of the the real life aspect that we know of of people through social media and so on, um, and, and as you said, Finn, yeah, he only had one more match after after this in WCW, which was two and a half years later at Starcade '99, which, which uh, we, we've also we, covered. <laughs> episode yes, episode five. So um, so yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought the match was really good. I mean, it was a hell of a pace. It was fought out. I mean, Benoit and Sullivan, they'd obviously worked, as Liam said, they'd been feuding forever. Uh, they worked together numerous times, so they knew what to do. I thought the uh, the combat on the Bash at the Beach set was was a lot of fun. Uh, even Jimmy Hart took a bump there off the uh, like the light was off the lifeguard tower. That's right. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jimmy Hart was he was earning he was earning his keep that night. So I mean, people really enjoyed stuff like that. I mean, this was a little bit more serious than the famous uncensored nineteen ninety five fake concession stand brawl between Harlem Heat and the Nasty Boys. It was a little oh bit more God. realistic than that. Uh, Jacqueline, I thought, was... I mean, she was just a dynamo in this match, wasn't she? She was getting stuck in. Benoit had obviously said, just lay them in, just, just lay them in, and we want it to look as good as possible. So I thought she was really good. She was very animated as well in the match. Uh, I thought even Jimmy Hart, who by this point in his career was pretty much redundant, even he did... Even he was relevant and actually contributed. So I enjoyed him being out there as well, which I never imagined I would. Um, it was kind of interesting that Sullivan was sort of working as a heel at the beginning, but then towards the end of the match, he made a babyface comeback on Benoit, which was a bit of a weird thing to see. But of course, Benoit was a member of the Four Horsemen, as we will describe later on in the show. Um, he was not averse to heelish act actions either. Uh, so, But it was a bit odd to me seeing Sullivan make a babyface comeback shortly before the finish. Um, as you mentioned, Dean, uh, Sullivan nailed Benoit with a pile driver on the floor. Now, this should have almost... Had this happened in Mexico, that would have been it. Your career would have been over, wouldn't it? Ooh, uh, even without stipulation. Yeah, I mean, at this point in wrestling history, a pile driver on the floor was a stretcher job. Yeah. Benoit, who, you know, was the psychology selling master, he barely sold that move. So I thought, why the hell did you just do that pile driver? Maybe Sully's thinking, it's my last match. I'm just doing it. Screw it, you know? Maybe he's just thinking <laughs> that. So, uh, and the ending there with Jackie and nailing Sullivan with the breakable chair, I thought that went went down great, and then she stormed out. And then Benoit did that insane diving headbutt, scored the pin. I mean, it was... You couldn't really ask for more from a match, and maybe there was too much going on, but Sullivan was the booker of record. This was his so-called last match, and I think he thought, you know what, I'm going out with a bang, and, and I thought he did. Yeah, he's, he's in his old stomping ground of Florida... Yeah, and it ties into the whole way he, it, they've, and especially the the whole apparent turn of babyface as you touched upon during the match. Uh, no one emphasised that more than the commentators, who really seem to be going out of their way to ignore every despicable thing he had done on WCW television for years, and suddenly put him over as as this like hard-working guy. Almost to, to a, it got to a point to me where they're telegraphing the finish that he was... I mean, everyone knew who's who's going to lose this match, but they weren't helping matters for sure. Um, and yeah, the, the whole face-hill vagueness of the horseman, we're going to see more of it throughout this show. It's really frustrating, and it doesn't help this match, and it doesn't help the overall roster at all. And I know they're in a tough spot because they're not... You know, they don't wear white hats, as they say, but you've got the new old order running roughshod and they're the 
the big bad du jour at the moment. But there's so many, so much flip-flopping between being a heel and trying to elicit sympathy from anyone associated with a horseman on this show, and it got really annoying. The other thing that annoyed me about this match, because I'd agree normally that... You know, these two going out is always going to entertain me, so it's good in that respect, as you said, Finn. But the other thing that annoyed me is that, yeah, while Jacqueline performed quite well, it was almost like, above all else, this match was a vehicle to get her over, which was overkill. There was far too much of her involvement in this match, especially when you think about it. Uh, we'll use hindsight to 2020 at this point, you know, 21 years on. We know they hardly did much else with her. She basically just became a far less involved manager for Harlem Heat not long after this. Um, but you could have seen this come in anyway because WCW has a, well, especially around this time frame, a deplorable record with treating women as a credible threat. We've glossed over it before when there was a match between Medusa and Colonel Robert Parker. We've seen the way they portray Kimberly and the Booty Man, things like that. There's so many other examples that we haven't actually discussed this podcast yet. And there's one coming up in the United States title match. If you don't believe me when I say that WCW have no idea how to portray women as anything other than a a one-dimensional prop. So all this putting Jacqueline over and for fucking what? Yeah, well, yeah, if you if you view it in terms of what happened next, if you just view it as a self-contained show, uh, it did seem like she was going to go far after this performance. Yeah. And the mind does boggle as to why she they didn't do something more meaningful with her after she was involved in the finish and supposedly cost this guy his job and his career. Yeah. So yeah. it's very bizarre, really, but... Hey, it's WCW, right? Yeah. I think I, I think uh, self self-contained is actually a great adjective for this match in general. Mm. Yeah, it's just as you say, it's a, a, a one-off kind of exhibition for for farewells, Kevin Sullivan. So yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Um, talking of farewells, by the way, I just want to mention that uh, coming up soon, November the twenty-seventh, it's the IPW's final ever Tuesday night graps at the Frog and Bucket Comedy Club. The Aussie Open Invitational is happening. Then I will be at uh, the wonderful city of Canterbury on November thirtieth. We've got the Great British Beer Bash with our special guest James Storm, and that all leads up to the big show, the final show of the year, the biggest show of the year. IPW presents Undisputed Two, uh, a place that uh, Finn Martin himself has visited on previous occasions, the Moat Park Centre in Maidstone in Kent. We've got Kip Sabian defending the IPW World Title against number one contender Chris Ridgeway, plus the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion. The national treasure, Nick Aldis, will be in attendance. Not only will he be in attendance, he'll be defending his title against the challenger yet to be determined. However, never mind that shit. Here comes Mongo. It's match number six. It's for the United States Heavyweight Championship. It's Steve McMichael versus Jeff Jarrett. Uh, and we are, we're straight into the next match. Jeff Jarrett has a challenge of carrying Steve McMichael to a match on pay-per-view. Uh, Mongo is accompanied by his wife, Deborah, in her trademark ball gown. The bell rings. Jarrett wisely starts stalling for time. Some basic exchanges end where McMichael chop blocks Jarrett's knee. Jarrett limps out of the ring as the commentators talk about how this is a wise move as it will prevent Jarrett from executing his figure four leg lock. 
Jarrett is dominated by his challenger so far, getting clotheslined out of the ring for his troubles, but then he grabs McMichael's foot and drags him out to the floor. Uh, but McMichael turns the tide again, just about getting Jarrett up for a press slam, while Dusty Rhodes babbles on about Dick Murdoch would be somehow watching Dennis Rodman wrestle from beyond the grave. Um, Jarrett then adopts the three-point stance himself and chop blocks McMichael's knee twice. He then sets up for the figure four, but uh, Deborah gets up on the apron. As she's being sent down to the floor again by the referee, Jarrett takes her briefcase. Jarrett hits McMichael, who blocks it with his arm. I'm not sure if he was meant to do that or not, but then eats the second shot straight to the head. Jarrett then covers him for the pin to retain his title in just seven minutes, and he leaves with Deborah. It was a plot all along, Finn. <laughs> hey Liam, why don't you take this first and I'll go after you uh, this wouldn't possibly be because I was alluding to the fact that after putting a woman over so strongly they're about to stick to their comfort zone of the Jezebel who betrays the husband, would it? <laughs> yes, probably, yeah. probably yes. <laughs> well, well this is it I mean, uh so yeah, so basically, even though it's you know, after all that praise of those reduction earlier, there's no real sign of uh, of an actual elaborate thing that anyone in the crowd or watching on TV could pick up on. Apparently, Deborah did deliberately slip uh, Jarrett the the briefcase, and the heel turn is basically you can hear the fans reacting to when they embrace afterwards because they're like, oh shit, that this is actually a thing that is happening. Um, yeah, I mean. I won't go in too strongly on this match because it's not terrible. It's not great. It's not terrible. But listen back to the interview we had with Jeff Jarrett on this podcast back in July. It wasn't too long ago. I have a little scroll down on our Podbean menu. Check us out on the Apple iTunes. You'll find it. Uh, Jeff Jarrett exclusive interview. And we asked him about Stephen Michael, who he feuded with extensively, who has a reputation for, you know, he had charisma, he had personality, uh, but he wasn't very good in the ring. He had some really awful matches with certain people. Um, and, and Jarrett put it best. He he said one, one of the things that, that kept Mongo around as long as he did was that he always listened. He always had a strong work ethic he always wanted to improve and if you think about there's probably especially in the the mid 90s WCW environment there are probably a lot of veteran wrestlers who would rather work with a a, a quote unquote crap wrestler who listens and follows leads and follows cues than someone who is a quote unquote very good wrestler but wants to you know overshadow and eventually overcome the person they're working for and sometimes within the confines of the match maybe even be the one who actually calls the match whereas like someone like Jeff Jack may feel more comfortable being the one taking the lead uh, and yeah so, so so this match is alright the hill turns pathetic and it's also a second hill turn finish in two matches what do they say about the rule of three gentlemen what did they say do you tell us uh, I think I might let Kurt Hennig in the next match say it for me, actually. <laughs> but yeah, ba- basically, it's going to be overkill of, of proportions. And speaking of things being overdone on this show, you mentioned the stalling, Dean. Yeah, there's a lot of stalling. Every match has so much stalling. Maybe that's why the, the Luchador stood out, because I think it's the only match where there wasn't a 120 seconds or longer stall fest. It's like going to an all-star show in the 90s. Hey. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, Bobby Heenan and Dusty Rhodes on commentary uh, made a point of talking about how much Steve McMichael had improved. <laughs> yeah, that's why Dusty and Bobby were there to make comments like that. Um, it was, I mean, it was, um, I think you were right about what you're saying about Steve McMichael. Also, I think people liked him there because they were probably marks for him because he'd been an NFL star. Yeah. So they probably thought, hey, yeah, this guy's a big star and like you know, we're working with him, we're hanging with him, and he'll tell us like, you know, war stories about being in the NFL. So I'm sure that contributed to it as well. Um, I think working with Steve McMichael, if you had a bad night, Steve could be blamed. It wasn't your fault. <laughs> yeah. So like we should get out of jail free card. So if you couldn't really be asked to put in a shift, well, <laughs> but I mean, he, he was, I mean, I didn't, I thought the match was all right because it's Steve McMichael. I mean, your expectations weren't going to be raised. This was all Jarrett doing his old Memphis tricks of selling and retreating and stalling, as you said, lots of that. Uh, I thought the heel turn at the end with Deborah was pretty slickly handled. I had to watch it a couple of times because I'd forgotten what happened. It was and I very subtle, she, wasn't it? It the, was the very subtle. Thing. Yeah, it was very subtle. But it, it also, like you were saying at the time, as particularly wrestlers' wives, wrestling sent this message uh, that wrestlers' wives and girlfriends could not be trusted. So it was a very sort of misogynistic attitude towards women. I mean, that was the way it was in wrestling in the 90s. Um, and you sort of sometimes you think, well, has wrestling really changed? And in that regard, I think it has. Because mm. back then, female managers or valets or personalities would usually end up turning heel on the guy and going off with somebody else. On this occasion, it was Steve McMichael's wife who did it. So I mean, it was just, but I guess, you know, at this time, you know, it was almost to be expected that this would happen. So I thought Deborah did well on the turn and then she left with Jarrah. But it was, you know, it was a bit of a, it was kind of a match that probably should have gone sec on second. I think it was too high on the show. Yeah. And it wasn't good enough to be in this spot. And it was all a bit silly and frivolous. And as you said, Liam, we had like three consecutive matches in which someone turned heel at the end. It was like, why wasn't it put on earlier? And then we would have had a break from that. I would have uh, swapped this and the Lucha match because as I alluded to, I feel like the career match and what it did with the crowd and how into it the crowd were, I think I could have done with a breather a little bit more than the Steiners and two guys who used to be good but are being treated as uh, NWO foot soldiers. So if you'd have swapped those two around, yeah, there'd have definitely been a little bit more breathing space in that respect. But yeah. um, this match was... It was there. It's worth noting that, you know, they, they because they had they employed storytelling and they had little little things going on, the commentators actually had things to sink their teeth into. Uh, the crowd and by extension the viewers were had more to get into than they did for Jericho Dragon. Exactly. Yeah. It was just like classic old school storytelling. But Jarrett, he obviously came up in the USWA, the Memphis old CWA, the Memphis territory. So he could do a match like this with his eyes closed. Real basic stuff. I mean, he knew how to do this. Um, you know, it wasn't too complicated, obviously, because he's in there with Mongo. Um, so, and we had the turn at the end. So at least, you know, if you wanted this story to continue, then you had something 
uh, as you said, to sink your teeth into. And it's like, oh, yeah, where's it going to go next? If you just wanted this feud to end, you by the end of it, you'd be <laughs> slapping your forehead and going, oh, no, it's going to continue. <laughs> yeah. And this is, remember, this is this is uh, Mongo McMichael, member of the Hill Horseman. And we saw the, the Hill tendencies of Ben Wan. We're going to see Hill Ric Flair later on. And he's supposed to get sympathy for having his wife leave him. Yeah, just, and, and you know, I, I respect that you try and defend the hill turn, and yeah, it's slickly. I can see why people say it's slickly done, but remember, from the from from an outer shell perspective, as far as getting this over to the crowd and to the TV audience, no one realised there was a hill turn, including the commentary, until they embraced afterwards, and she was clapping for Jarrett's win. Uh, yeah. The 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 moment the penny should have dropped when the briefcase went over. Uh, and as a result, it's hard to look at it slickly done because it's only slickly done when you watch it on a replay when when the penny has already dropped. Well, yeah, I suppose my, my point being that it was done in a way that was very, very subtle. And it was like the way Deborah set it up was very well done. It was, we didn't see it coming. So some, you know, some heel turns are signposted from afar and this one wasn't. And that was something WCW liked to do. He liked to surprise people. I mean, it's possible that the announcers hadn't been alerted ahead of time that this was coming. Quite possible, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, this was WCW, right? Yes, because WCW. <laughs> I think the thing with this was that because the actual giving him the briefcase was done so subtly, you could have probably kept this going for a little while where she you know, denied all knowledge and that he'd snatched it off her and she didn't mean for him to get it. And, and now that would have he... been brilliant. Yeah. Is there, there must be a documented uh, situation in wrestling history where someone has, has turned heel on their friend or their client, but they've managed to actually keep it from that client where everyone else knows that they're blatantly helping the other person. But they go, no, no, no it was an accident. And they've strung it along because if not, someone needs to book that. That would be brilliant. Hmm. Cog's De- turn. Dean's going to book it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, moving on, we have another Mean Gene shill, uh, and then we have a pre-recorded black and white promo from Hogan and Rodman. Uh, none of it makes any sense. It goes on far too long, but at least Hulk Hogan is talking nicely on camera about a black person for a change. <laughs> yep, I went there. <laughs> Huge fan of you going there. Match number seven. It is Scott Hall and Randy Savage versus... Diamond Dallas Page and a mystery partner. The NWO are accompanied by Elizabeth. DDP comes out to a pretty decent pop. Um, and he comes out with Kimberly and points to the back and out and saunters Kurt Hennig to what felt well. It felt one from watching it like a bit of a muted reaction. What was the reaction like live, Finn? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Hennig didn't exactly pump up the crowd. This wasn't Hulk Hogan at Madison Square Garden just before he won the title from the Iron Sheik. You know what I mean? And if you want to yeah. go back, I don't know if either of you have seen that recently, but that's one of the... It's just amazing just how Hogan's there just interacting with the audience. This is like the antithesis of that. <laughs> you know, already Hennig's looking like a heel, like he can't really be asked. 
which kind of sums up his entire WCW run, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> but so, I don't know if you guys remember, but one of the big problems with this, and I'm, I'm going to point out a lot of problems, because for me, this is the worst match on the card by a country mile for a multitude of reasons. One of the problems with this as a, as a mystery partner deal is, I don't know if you guys remember, Kurt Hennig made his long anticipate those because he'd been linked with making a jump over since 94 when he was the favorite to be the masked man attacking hulk hogan who ended up being bloody butcher ed leslie uh big anticipated thing you know as a mystery partner deal it could have got a good pop uh they had him make his debut unannounced out of the blue for no reason whatsoever six days before nitro probably because of the obsession with the ratings war. Uh, so as a result, everyone knew he was here. They, the commentators had him, whenever they brought this match up, they had him narrowed down on a short list of three. They said it might be Raven, which you know, makes a little bit of sense, but they, there's no reason to drag him up this high this early, and they probably don't deem as worthy of it at that point. And the other one being the biggest problem with this match is Sting. Because if you're going to run a mystery partner thing against the NWO at this juncture and it's not Sting, it's going to be a massive fucking disappointment. And lo and behold, there's We Want Sting chance. There's there's no reaction to Hennig's entrance. There's not much reaction to the dichotomy of the match. So it blew up in their faces massively. And as we'll find out, there was really no point for the match to happen whatsoever. There really wasn't. DDP has his ribs taped up. Um, he starts the match off with Savage, gets the best with him at every exchange. The commentators talk about how DDP is the thorn in the NWO's side who keeps outsmarting them. Uh, a frustrated Savage tags out to Hall. DDP tags in Hennig to virtually no reaction. Um, Hall and Hennig tie up after chucking a toothpick and chewing gum, respectively, at their foes. Of course, the two of them were AWA World Tag Team Champions. And then more recently, they're on opposite sides at the Survivor Series 92 tag tag match. So they, they, they allude to there being history without going into any details. Um, Hennig dominates Hall in the early going, and the respect Hall has for him means that he actually sells for him. Page then gets caught with a clothesline, and Savage enters the fray with a top rope axe handle. Uh, Hall comes back in and targets Page's taped ribs while Savage gets some shots in while the ref's got his back turned. Dusty Rhodes mentions how this shows the one-year anniversary of Hogan's turn and the formation of the NWO, not mentioning how the guy who Hogan physically turns on is now part of the NWO himself. Um, Page gets uh, finally gets a second win, tags out to Hennig, he gets whipped to the, into the ropes by Savage and awkwardly collides with Page on the apron, falls to the floor. He then hits Page from behind and walks out of the match. Hall nails Page with the outside dredge. Savage lands the big elbow for the pin with his foot on Page's chest after nine and a half minutes. It was. It was just poor, wasn't it? It was just, as Liam said, why did this match take place? Why did you waste this guy in oh, this yeah. situation? Um, yeah, the announcers had shortlisted him, so we kind of knew it was going to be him anyway. And then the only drama was provided by Gene Oakland when he was there in his sleazy hotline plugs when he's saying, there are a number of big-name wrestlers backstage who have no reason to be here unless they're Diamond Dallas Page's partners. So, I mean, Gene was the only one who was providing any drama. And, like, I think it's a little bit too late now for us to ring the hotline. So we couldn't ring the hotline to, <laughs> you know, to increase the tension or the mystery over who it might be. But to me, Henning just didn't look like he could be bothered. I mean, he, WCW was paying him a lot of money. He was very well paid by the company. 
and he never really seemed to me like he ever put his heart into it. I mean, he did have, I mean, he was US champion and he had a few good matches, but he very quickly moved down the card and was just not the guy that you thought he was going to be. Yeah, compared, um, compared to when he, like, um, went to the WWF again, I think, in 2002. Yeah, Royal Rumble. He was, yeah, and he was, like, really up for it. And he was full of full of vitality, I suppose, wasn't he? Yeah, it was vigorous performance. He did, like, the perfect plex, and he really got over. And then they got, they got rid of him, didn't they, after the... the... Plane ride from plane hell. Ride from hell, yeah. Another that's thing right, he has yeah. in common with Scott Hall. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at least I don't think Scott was really a danger to anyone on that flight except for himself. Self, yeah. Whereas uh, Mr. Perfect, <laughs> with the famous Brock Lesnar brawl, <laughs> from my, thinking that they were going to die. My favourite story from that was apparently, allegedly, while all this was happening at the uh, at the back of the plane, you had two of the hardest men in the company who could have probably legitimately stopped this, uh, Kurt Angle and, fin- and Fit Finley, allegedly saying, fuck this, and just eating some chocolate cake in the front row. <laughs> Which is a great, I don't know how true it is, but it's a great mental image. I've never I, heard that story. I thought I'd heard all the playing Ride from Hell stories, but never heard that one. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, so the, the, thing that, the thing that really struck me was just how badly they handled the, the introduction of Hennig because it was his first match in WCW but he'd shown up in on Nitro two weeks previously so it wasn't like it was a massive surprise as well as the fact they're you know plugging it on the hotline and mentioning commentary and that but also like he came out to DDP's music he didn't have a big entrance you know you you think about when you know when people have debuted big names have debuted in, in WWE or even in NXT and how that's handled compared to this. It was just, they, they, they had something that could have been really big and this made it very, really very ordinary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it didn't help either that, that Hennig was in really poor shape. I mean, Scott Hall even pointed at Hennig's stomach. Um, and on, on commentary, Heenan said, <laughs> he's in the best Hennig. shape of his life or something. Yeah, it looks like he's in the best shape of his life. It's like another Heenan uh, you know, comment that comment that's detached from reality. Like there's Bobby in his own parallel universe. So I mean it's just like and then the ending was like screwed up. I think Paige was supposed to pull the rope down and Hennig was supposed to topple over the rope to the floor and that didn't happen. So it didn't really seem like Hennig had a valid reason to absolutely whack Paige on the back of the head, which or back of the neck, which he did. Um, then Paige got back into the ring, Hall hit him with the outsider's edge. Then Randy Savage climbed the top rope. And when he's up there, I'm sure you both noticed this, he spat at Kimberly. I mean, I don't think he hit her. I think she ducked him. It's like, there's no need for that. Savage hits the big elbow and it's over. I would agree, worst match on the show. For four guys of this, of this well, this talent on paper, but certainly of this status, this should have been so much better. And and especially coming off the uh, the Dallas Page Randy Savage feud, which Ooh. had been so hot, Spring Stampede, and the Great American Bash, and then for them to be involved in something this mediocre was only added to the disappointment. Well, I've got to say, yeah, that feud was shit hot, but it, it, for me, it actually made 
the the spitting spot, as unsavoury as spitting is in any context, uh, that spot kind of tied in well because there was a genuine palpable hatred between not just the two characters doing the wrestling, but also Kimberly and Elizabeth. It was one of the few times where you know it wasn't one dimensional women in in WCW. I, I I kind of to to some extent I'm sure it wasn't always like this, but I did appreciate what they brought to that feud. But yeah, this match was an unnecessary chapter of that feud. Um, not only did it undermine the actual heel turn that Kurt Hennig would do, a, a massive little, people remember this to this day. The uh, when he turned on the Horseman during the NWO, that should have been his big moment. But this dilutes it. Uh, I don't even look at it as, as as foreshadowing. It's just you know when you heal, when you turn heel over and over again, you could say it foreshadows the fact that you're going to turn on people, but it, it it takes the effect out of it. Uh, it also took the you guys mentioned how much they were putting over DDP on uh, commentary about having always that smite the NWO. So of course they book him to bring out this fat out shape guy who then costs him the match, and suddenly he looks like babyface sting level dumb so this match undermined so many good things about wcw the new world order its various feuds and especially the one they were showcasing here which was the savage ddp feud it was just it was an absolute abomination when you consider all the factors yeah I'd rather watch an actual bad... I'd rather watch a minus five-star match because it's a, at least it's perversely entertaining, whereas this is just a, this is just a, a wart on the yeah. skin of wrestling. Just want to mention earlier, when Dallas Page was doing that Q&A session on the newfangled internet, he yes. came across as a total heel to the audience. Did you notice that? It's just like... Yes. Yeah, because I'm not going to tell... Why Why am I going to tell you who my tag partner is and stuff? Yeah. You're supposed to be I'm supposed to like you. They were trying to keep him edgy. He was supposed to still be a bit edgy, wasn't he? Uh, one of the reasons he was courted by the outsiders was that whole attitude, especially once he once he started bouncing out of the lower card and got the diamond cutter and started becoming a little bit more relevant. That was a DDP they wanted. I kind of get that, but almost like... Do you remember when they turned John Cena babyface and they desperately tried to keep hill elements about him and they used stone cold as the inspiration but it came across as contrived and too much and that's that that very much struck me as the case here uh they're going for shades of gray they're going for anti-hero but it just wasn't working but you can see why they're going for that because it was guys like dp and sting that were coming forward as as actual believable threats to the new world order. See, yeah. if you, 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 that's why I love to see the storyline where they actually did hire all and sundry. You know, new world order goes from this really cool click of three, four, five, six people tops to becoming 60 strong. Every, just loads of foot soldiers, massive flooding of, of people just, you know, can't beat them, join them. And, then you've got a reason to hate them because they're the hills who are who are not cool anymore, and that's why you enjoy the stings and the DDPs taking them down. But instead, we had to be it had to be hammered home just who the cool people were, and yeah. that is why even during a shit hot time like this, with the benefit of hindsight, we could see why WCW was going to fall apart at the seams. And and the legacy of that is that even now, you know, in in 
some promotions, some independent promotions, whatever, you still get people wanting to be the cool heels because of this. Uh, I fucking uh, hate cool heels. We all do. They we they, they they want they they want all the dominance of a feud of a heel and and they want all the all the glory of a babyface. It's ridiculous. Fuck off. Get in the sea, cool heel. Get in room one oh one. Be a dickhead heel, it's so much more fun. Yes. Be a be a chicken and... shit heel. Let's move on to match number eight. It's Roddy Piper v. Ric Flair. No, really, it's Roddy Piper versus Ric Flair with an average age of 45. Uh, yet Dusty Rhodes on commentary states that both men are in their prime without a hint of irony. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Piper immediately starts throwing a barrage of wild punches at Flair, causing him to make a sharper exit. More offense from Piper culminates in the trademark Flair flop and clothesline on the apron. Flair drops to his knees to beg to beg for mercy, so Piper drops to his knees and pokes Flair in the eye. Referee Mark Curtis gets Piper to break in the corner. Flair chop blocks him in the back of the knee, and it's now all Flair working on Piper's knee, mixed in with some chops. Flair gets the figure four leg lock on in the middle of the ring, but Piper gets his t- grits his teeth and turns it over. Uh, Piper starts to make a comeback, but is cut off with a low blow from Flair. He makes a more successful comeback with a, with a flurry of punches. Flair gets clotheslined over the top rope to the floor. Back in the ring, Flair counters a sleeper hold from Piper with a drop-down chin-breaker, uh, but Flair then gets caught on the top rope for the millionth time in his career, and Piper clamps on a figure four on Flair in the middle of the ring. Uh, Flair gets to the ropes, but he pulls out a set of brass knucks or, or some sort of foreign object from his trunks. He goes to hit Piper with it, but Piper grabs Flair's arm, removes them, and punches Flair with it. Uh, he makes the cover, but Steve McMichael sprints down the aisle, and while McMichael distracts the ref, Benoit runs in and goes for a diving headbutt on Piper, who forgets his spot and goes back to lying on top of the prone Flair. Piper moves, Benoit lands on, on Flair in the most contrived spot of the match, and that's saying something. McMichael lands a tombstone pile driver on Piper, while Mark Curtis is still distracted. Flair rolls over and drapes an arm. Uh, over Piper. Piper kicks out. After swapping some more punches, Piper gets a sleeper hold on Flair. Flair's arm drops three times. Piper is your winner in 13 and a half minutes. Hey. <laughs> well done, Dean. <laughs> we've, we've seen this before many, many times. <laughs> we have. I thought it was... I thought by this point, obviously it's a nostalgia match. We've got two guys who've been doing this for well over 20 years. I mean, Flair's, I think he made his debut, was it December 72? So he's coming up 25 years in the biz. So, I mean, you know, it was a nostalgia match. I thought by the standards of the time, it was a superior version of the Flair match. But, I mean, the you know, the histrionics and just all the extras by this point, this one was just, it was over the top. It was silly, it was stupid, it was big, it was loud, it was all these things. And, you know, at times the camera work was too good and Flair's doing the punches to Piper and there's like, there's like, they're like missing by five inches. I mean, Piper's sleeper at the end, just, I mean, there's a, showing so much light, it just looked terrible. It's like, how many times have you applied the sleeper, Mr. Piper? <laughs> Why does it look this awful? Um, so, yeah, you can't, I wouldn't say that this was a good match, even though Tony Schiavone remarked afterwards, this is a match that we will remember forever. That's what he said. Um, 
But I mean, the fans were really into it. It ticked that sort of silly nostalgia box. I think that's what it was there for. But if Liam wants to step up now and trash this match, I wouldn't argue with him because there was too much going on. It was silly. It was over the top. Um, it was Ric Flair in 1997. But also, it's, again, talk, thinking of the casual viewers who might be not be regular wrestling fans tuning in because of Dennis Rodman. Ric Flair and Roddy Piper are names that you will have you will have heard of. Exactly. Absolutely right, yeah. I mean, it was a couple of old-timers just in many ways going through the motions, but I think they did do it more vigorously than they usually did at that time. So I, I thought that they did put in, I thought they did put the effort in. I thought they did give it a little bit of welly. Uh, and these guys obviously were getting on at this point, were doing it for a long time, couldn't go like they used to be able to. So as far as the nostalgia went, nostalgia match went, it, it was... It worked. I think that's the nicest thing I can say about it. In that arena that night, it worked and it gave people what they came to see from those two guys. The one question I've got to ask, though, is at what point did Roddy Piper think it would be a good idea to let Steve McMichael tombstone pile driver him? I mean, you've got to get that move spot on. If you get that a bit wrong, you could knacker someone's neck up, as, as we know from Steve Austin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean... I, I don't know. That's a good yeah. question, Dean. Especially when he's still trying to come to terms with his wife leaving him. <laughs> suddenly, suddenly he's yeah. doing a generic hill running, which is, a, again, another problem with the, the whole situation of Horseman. But I guess if current WWE product has taught us anything, if you want to job someone out without actually jobbing them out with defeats, which can be a bit obvious, the best thing you can do is just take the value out of everything they do and have them float around doing things indiscriminately and they just they just won't have an appeal with the order and then you can say oh they don't connect to the crowd and that feels like what they're doing the horsemen here as far as me going in two-footed on this match mr martin you're half right um yeah the finish was awful the minute the running started it all fell apart some of the the moves and that were ridiculously loose and the cameras picked up on it it's funny how those those cameras miss so much and they pick up the the really weak punches and holds uh and if you just look at the face value of it these two guys going at it yeah it's it's really depressing uh just a few months before the, the the infamous age in the cage stigma was slapped upon one of their big marquee main events, WCW giving us this. But the way to look at this in a positive light, and this is the saddest indictment of the current product that I can offer, aside from that little dig I just made, is that I would take this match between Flair and Piper over the main events of the two international pay-per-views we just had any day of the week. Because this was 10 times better than Undertaker Triple H. It was 10 times better than the tag match in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and that's the saddest part of it. And how much WWE happily ripped into this culture in those days at the time. And they'd go and one-up it as soon as they had their feet under the table. So, uh, yeah. Um, there, there was a lot to like about this. The crowd, as you guys mentioned, the crowd being into was the most important part. And that tells you a lot of what you need to know, that we can rip into this match in so many different ways. 
as TV viewers, but the live crowd ate it up with a spoon. There were a lot of things I said to you guys before we went on air. There were a lot of things about this pay-per-view that struck me as it was a show for the live crowd. And that's why I'm glad that you got to experience that in person. Because even though you've been quite praiseful of certain elements of this show via the network, uh, it does sound like you had a much better time live. And it feels like that sort of show that is designed for that. And we're about to see that with the main event as well. But I th- yeah, the, the, the matches, is all, they work within their limitations. There's certain things to enjoy. They'd have far more embarrassing efforts with each other and other past it relics. And the best comparison in that respect is to make to Slambury 99 when they'd have these guys wrestle again. Hey. Uh, for presidency. And that's when that's when WCW really fell off the edge of a cliff. Yeah. So it's not just the personnel, it's not just their ages per se, it's how they did it. And and you guys were right. They 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 did it in a way that it there was an acceptable portion of this. It was enough to stomach. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. I mean, you know, and as you said, the uh you know, familiar match, but it was, you know, heated atmosphere. The atmosphere really contributed so much to this. I think the atmosphere really carried it in many ways. And you see that you could tell the guys were having a great time as well. And that's that's always infectious, I think, when you can see that the wrestlers are enjoying themselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's a sort of crowd that flip. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But yeah, that is the sort of crowd that Flair and Piper were brought up on. A sort of crowd that Flair and Piper cultivated themselves in their pomp. So yeah, you know they love performing in front of a rabid crowd and, and playing them like a cello. Definitely. Well, without further ado, we go straight into our much-anticipated main event. It is Lex Luger and the Giant versus Hollywood Hulk Hogan and Dennis Rodman. Uh, so out comes our Master of Ceremonies and uh, Chief Wine Waiter giving his lovely white jacket, Michael Buffer. Now, I know we've mentioned Michael Buffer many, many times, but I'll say this on this occasion, Liam, given that it's a special event, given that you've got your casual fans, this is the perfect time to wheel out Michael Buffer. Exactly. If they did it for this one and they did it for Starcade 97, and this is what we said in that Ring Announcers episode, which was the Dave Penzer interview one, uh, that's where you get you the. Because then you, you're spending a fraction of whatever it is per show is probably too much. But you do Bash at the Beach 97 with Rodman, you do Hogan Sting, and then you keep it to twice a year. Remember, he was doing nitros at one point. Yeah, you, you make it special. Absolutely, yeah, you make so it special, yeah. Definitely. Um, also, according to Buffer, Lex Luger is apparently famous for his rack of doom. Um, out come the heels, and of course, Savage has managed to get himself in on the deal as their acting manager, or translation, he's a veteran pro in the corner in case Rodman fucks it up. Babysitter. Um, Yes, there are loads of NWO t-shirts in the crowd, and uh, it's probably fair to say we're at the peak of the NWO gimmick in WCW at this stage. Um, We start with Luger v. Hogan. It takes a good while for them to lock up, and and why not? You know, they're milking it. It's very basic wrestling. It doesn't have to be anything more than that. Luger's getting the upper hand over Hogan. Hogan retreats to his corner and tags in Rodman, who gets a big pop. He's still wearing his sunglasses and bandana, and it did. I, I've got yeah, my notes here say it reminds me of how WCW never ever learned how to mic their crowds properly compared to WWE, but we, we've, we've covered that already, I guess. Um, it, it's Luger v. Rodman, plenty more stalling, conferring with Hogan. The crowd start chanting, Rodman sucks. They lock up, Rodman arm drags Luger. The crowd go mental. 
really good uh, yeah, basic move, but really good looking. Um, another lockup. Rodman's now on the receiving end of a lot, an arm drag. He pops up, very nearly runs into the giant, walks into a second arm drag before he rolls out the ring. And his selling in this is absolutely great, aided and abetted, of course, by Hogan and Savage. Uh, the sunglasses and bandana have come off. He gets back in the ring with Luger. He leapfrogs Luger, locks him down with a shoulder block. And the crowd are loving seeing Rodman doing actual wrestling moves. Um, he executes two more leapfrogs, but gets clotheslined by Luger for his troubles, scrambles to the corner, tags in Hogan, and Luger tags in the Giant for his first appearance in the match. Hogan uh, gets a, a huge atomic drop from the Giant and tags Rodman back in. And it's great to see how the six foot seven inch Rodman is almost the same height as the supposedly seven foot four inch Giant. Um, Rodman tries his leapfrogging routine again but gets caught in a bear hug and an atomic drop Hogan runs in, attacks Giant from behind they then double team the Giant they make quick tags in and out they execute an impressive looking double hip toss on Giant for a two count Um, Giant tags Luger back in he's clotheslining everyone including Savage Um, Hogan then takes over on Luger he hits his leg drop or as Finn would have called it in the glory days of Power Slam the leg drop of Doom TM. <laughs> how, many, how many Dooms are there? There's a rack of Doom, a leg doom, drop of doom. of doom, Dungeon of Doom, yeah. Dungeon of um, Doom, the tag team combination of Doom. Yes. Jesus. Um, John, we had John Cena's, is it five moves? Five of moves doom? of Doom, five yes. Moves, yeah. He added a yeah. sixth. He oh, did. Right. That was a yeah. doozy, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Hogan's non cover only gets a two count. Rodman's back in. Um, he lands three Kevin Nash style big elbows in the corner onto Luger. Um, Luger tags in the giant. Giant delivers headbutts and big boots to both opponents. And, and Rodman, again, is rump- bumping really, really well for a man who's not a wrestler. Um, a man dressed as Sting, who's much chunkier than Steve Borden, has longer, different hair, walks down the aisle with a Sting mask on. Uh, while he's making his way to the ring, Rodman attacks the referee Randy Anderson, kicks him out to the floor. The fake Sting hits the giant from behind with his baseball bat and exits the ring. With giant out on the floor, Rodman holds Luger Luger for Hogan to hit, but of course Luger moves, Hogan hits Rodman, Luger then puts Hogan up in the torture rack, or the rack of doom. Uh, Nick Patrick slides into the ring like an action hero, and just as Hogan submits to give the baby faces the victory, Luger then gets Rodman up in the rack as well, followed by Savage, and we go off the air with Hogan complaining that Luger wasn't the legal man. Um, just what a real a real occasion a real and a really enjoyable match basic but enjoyable match to watch on the on the network what was the live experience like yeah i mean it was even better live i think i mean the fans were just so into it i mean this is what they came to see lots of people at the time resented hogan or at least people in the you know in the hardcore fans or whatever you want to call them in those days i think that was the uh, reference yeah. Uh, that people use or smart fans or whatever you want to call them. Lots of people resented Hogan at the time and felt like he didn't deserve his spot. But if you were to, if you were to try and watch this, if you were to watch this match with anything other than a huge bias, then you would say the guy absolutely deserved his spot. Absolutely, he did because this was the main event in terms of reactions from the audience. And just the whole way it played out. I mean, as you said, Dean, it was a very basic match. But they managed to fill a lot of time there with not a whole lot of bumps, not a whole lot of action. 
but just with good old fashioned crowd working tactics, which went down a storm with that audience. Mm. Absolutely terrific. And, you know, just the real basic psychology of pro wrestling. I mean, you can you can learn all you need to know about it from that Rodman arm drag. You can learn so much about pro wrestling just from that spot. And we should note as well that that was done. Luger sold it. And like people like, wow, look at Rodman. But then Luger, the face, he came back and he sent Rodman and Hogan flying. So the baby face did shine in the end. And it was designed, even though your sort of lasting memory was Rodman. The, the idea of it on paper was that it was to set Luger up for his comeback. Didn't really work, but kind of did. Um, I mean, I thought Hogan was just, I mean, he was just a, a ring general in there in terms of just ludicrous selling and over the top <laughs> silly stuff, which this match, and that's what this match was all about, even though it was a main event. I mean, when Giant nailed him with an atomic drop, Hogan sold it like his ass was broken. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, and you, as Lee was saying, you know, you watch you watch WWE today, and it's just like no one sells anything. And like, if one of you guys would actually sell something, you would really get over so much. People would probably believe it was real. You know that? Yeah. I mean, um, we were talking about production. I thought one of the probably the best camera shot of the night. Uh, was Rodman doing some elbows on Luger in the corner and then the cameraman right up on the apron and they look really good close up. I thought uh, Rodman's bumps looked decent. Um, I thought he was filling time between stuff brilliantly. His crowd working and everything was like a, an inspiration, really. Um, I mean, the whole thing with Kevin Nash coming in dressed as Sting was ridiculous. And then the announcers had to pretend that it was Sting, even though as this guy left the ring, he stood over the top rope. It's like the WCW announcers just had no chance, did they? I mean, they didn't help themselves, but they were put in a bind from the start, weren't they? Let's face it. Um, I thought the, the ending was, it was kind of fell apart a little bit towards the end. It was a bit silly at the end. Um, I mean, I know the theme of this match was that it was not meant to be taken seriously, but even by the standards of this match, it just fell off a cliff a little bit at the end. I mean, Hogan did the job there. This was all to set up um, Luger's uh, title win on Nitro, I believe. Is that right? I think that's right, isn't it? That is correct. That was, between, yes. between this pay-per-view and the next one, Road World, he'd win the belt off Hogan and then he'd lose it like a week or six days later at the pay-per-view. So, yes. so, and that's one thing of, of all the things we can praise about Hogan's work. And it does deserve praise, puts Hogan over, uh, loses the title to him in the match they're building towards. And then he wins it back at the, the, the pay-per-view afterwards. So he shows he's, he's willing to do everything in the world when he knows it comes straight back to him afterwards. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. I mean, that was, that's what, I mean, that was the way it was with Hogan. So, I mean, yeah. that was, it was a valid, people would complain about him making it all about himself. Of course he did do. But I think if you look at this match, he really, he was the main event to me, even though athletically he was, there, was, there wasn't many guys on the words on the, on the card athletically who were worse than him, but it's not about that in the main event. Hogan knew that. And that was why Hogan became the biggest star ever up until that yeah. point. But also, do you think about from like, well, from Rodman's point of view, if you're like, 
if you're asked to to wrestle in a tag match on WCW, who's the guy, the one guy on the roster that you're going to want to tag up with? Maybe because you're a fan of his, more, or or maybe just because you know that will get you the maximum publicity. You know, if he'd have tagged up with Flair or Piper or Savage, yes, it would have got some publicity, but everybody in America, everybody, pretty much everyone in the world knows the name Hulk Hogan. He is, you know, virtually a household name at, at that point in time. He's the guy that, you know, he's the guy who brings, I, I think his name value brings in the name value of Dennis Rodman. Well, look, sure, at the, yeah. look at the promo. I know it was a long-winded, rambling promo they had with the two of them earlier. But it was basically those two going, oh, you're the man, you're so great. No, you're the man, you're so great. And in a hill way, if it had been like a quarter of the length and it would have been the exact same thing repeated over and over again, it would have been perfect. That's exactly what we had here. And it kind of works, the hill tag team. Just two uh reviled but very well known and successful guys in their respective uh, fields of work coming together in a in a you know a hollywood pardon the pun-esque uh mutual admiration society it made a lot of sense so there was there was a lot about that team to like there was as you guys already touched upon there's a lot about robman's work to like and he this, bumped brilliantly yeah. i thought he he took bumps and he sold and as you you know he took bumps and as you said finn sold things brilliantly the, the man was a world-class athlete at this point. It's easy to overlook that when you think, oh, he's in a different sport. The man, the man's athletic prowess was better than a lot of the roided-up past-the-prime wrestlers on this card. Uh, sure. And, yeah, his ability to work the crowd was amazing. And that's what made him above, you know, there was, there was a lot of great basketball players in the mid-90s. But what put Rodman head and shoulders above them was was his courting of controversy, his ability. And as we'll see later on in his WCW career, you know, it was a blessing and a curse. But this is the this was my biggest problem with this match because yeah, as a standalone it works perfectly, but its legacy was damaging. Because you could say the same about Austin McMahon and other successful things in wrestling, but this would lead to them going back to that well over and over and over and over again, culminating things like Jay Leno being the celebrity in the tag match. We'd have Dennis Rodman versus Macho Man in a singles match that was just horrible to watch at Road World 99. Can't wait for us to check that one out on the podcast, Dean. Uh, So we get so many things because... You had the Carl Malone tag match basically yeah you, you ba- oh we've covered that it was episode two wasn't it and that was mm. you know listen to that because we go in depth on everything behind the scenes and the the, the the match was just a disgrace and only a year after this they thought they'd uh, make lightning strike twice and it didn't work um everything good and everything bad about wcw that was happening in 96 97 it's just so sad to look back and realize that bischoff hogan everyone else in power basically took all the bad things and convinced themselves that that was the key to success and not the icing on the cake with future longevity coming from the things that they convinced themselves were to be marginalized and put in piss break matches and being given distinct flavors so you know they are mid-carders to quote hogan for 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 life but overall overall i mean you you mentioned you mentioned right at the beginning of this podcast finn that you you know it was a it was a good show and and i've got to agree it was it was a very enjoyable show it was it was fun mostly i would agree yeah i mean it was two hour 45 minute show i believe and it just felt like they packed so much into that two hours and 45 minutes 
that you didn't need any more. I felt, you know, as a wrestling viewer, I felt totally fulfilled. I felt like I got total value for money from this show. I didn't need anything else. And uh, there were so many different matches on it as well. I mean, as Liam just said, a lot of these guys were pegged as mid-carders uh, and were basically told from the start that no matter how good you are, no matter how much you get over, you're never going any further than this. And in many ways, that was what led to WCW's downfall in 99. But, I mean, we're not really talking about that here. We're talking about Bash of the Beach 97. And I thought it was a hugely entertaining show. Um, so many different things going on and uh, so much to take from it. In many ways, maybe too much. Um, I don't know that it was quite like uh, watching an episode of Sunday Night Heat, which is usually total sensory overload. But not far off. Maybe I couldn't have. I don't think I could have digested anything else if they'd given us anything more on this show. Yeah, there was so much on this show. Uh, but you know, I enjoyed it on the night. I enjoyed the experience of going there. Um, and I've got to say, I enjoyed watching it again back um, on the network. And um, I would absolutely recommend anyone listening to this podcast to give it a chance. Yeah, I would. Uh, I'd have to say that it's fitting that this particular show was a WCW Bash at the Beach event because it was very much a remote desert island. Watch this in isolation. Cast it away from everything else going on at WCW at the time. And it's difficult for me to say when I can't do that myself. Don't think about all the all the things to come, all the things that you've heard about behind the scenes. Just sit down and watch a show and you probably won't be disappointed. Yeah, I would agree. Excellent. Now, just before we uh, we let you go, Finn, we, we do always ask our uh, guests to choose a WCW theme tune from not doesn't have to have anything to do with this pay-per-view. It can be from anywhere in the annals of time. Um, so don't tell us what it is. We, we, we'll, we'll press, we'll get Liam has uh, queued this up. He will press play in the moment and, uh, and we'll, we'll see what you've chosen. No, I don't, I don't want to, I'm not pressing play. <laughs> you know why Dean, you know what, you know what he's picked. Okay, okay, so I do know, I do know what it, what it, um, what it is, but, but Liam, for God's sake, we, we've, we just press play. (laughs) Oh, don't, all right.
So, if if you don't recognise this tune, Mr. Martin, please Count tell. Count yourself lucky. <laughs> please, please tell the people of Because Love You Seven what you have chosen here. Well, it's the Ricky Steamboat theme tune from the abysmal Slam Jam album. I mean, it was lots shit. of look, <laughs> that you know, whole album. It was just all. I mean, we mentioned maybe Barry Windham's track wasn't that bad, but you know, now I've had a little bit of time to think about it. Maybe that was really. It actually was awful as well. Yeah, I, I thought that sucked as well. The the only redeeming feature for me, and I think Dean has agreed with this in the past. One track was good, and that was Rick Roots. Was that? Uh, how did that go? He's simply ravishing. He's happening. He knows that he's cool. That one. I've got to say, I don't remember that one. I'm going to have to send you a link. I, I have the you won't regret album, it. Because at that point, it was a novelty for yes. a wrestling album to be released. And it, WCW and WCW Magazine have made such a production out of pushing this album. I think the Freebirds, were, were they supposedly involved in it? And was it was it Jimmy Papo who was behind it? Is that, That's is that right. Him? That name rings a bell, Yes. And there was like talk that someone from I think Leonard Skinner was involved. I don't know if that is also Jimmy Papa. It could well be. God knows. <laughs> but it was just like they had all these really good theme tunes. Like Sting's theme tune was just like this. It was just a really good electric guitar um, powered intro that really fired up the crowd. Ooh. And then they cha- then they changed it to a man called Sting. You know, he does this, he does he that. He does that, yes. I mean, the, the lyrics on this one are, are amazing. It's, you know, what is it? Um, loves his wife and son and does the best he can. The only wrestler who's not hard to understand, Ricky Steamboat the Dragon. I mean, it's just like, how could this have ever been released? Of course, because it's WCW. Uh, but the, the Ricky Steamboat one, I remember at the time thinking that it was the worst of a dire album. I mean, some albums are like, oh, killer, no filler. This was just all crap, wasn't it? And this was just the smelliest part of it of all. I mean, they just, the the Ricks, I just could not believe that a, a song this bad could be used on TV. And Ricky Steamboat at this point was getting kind of long in the tooth. I'm thinking he doesn't need any more um, hindrances to getting over with an audience that might not really, they might think that he's a bit past it. And this song just made him out to be, you know, just a regular guy, you know. He goes, he might as well said he goes bowling on Tuesday night. <laughs> he does the shopping Cooks on Thursday and yeah, washes cook. the car on Sunday morning. You know what I mean? That might as well have been the lyrics. But you know what? Also, think of it from this perspective. Think of it from poor Ricky Steamboat's perspective. Every single time he wrestles for WCW on the house shows, night in, night out, he's got to listen to that fucking awful theme tune. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, it just shows you what a pro Ricky Steamboat was. Because even though he was getting on a bit and ended up retiring, of course, in '94 due to the back injury he suffered in the, I think it was the Austin match at one of the Clash yeah. events. Um. I mean, he was still pretty good. I mean, he was getting on a bit and wasn't as good as he had been, but was never embarrassed himself at any point. And as if memory serves me correctly, that match he had with uh, Austin at the Clash was was like the highlight of the show. Mm. 
And then, you know, I'm even thinking about when he had that comeback at WrestleMania against Jericho, where he absolutely blew everyone out of the water. And then That's they did right. the singles yeah, I mean, match at Backlash as well, which was really yeah. good. And I think, did you read? Did you guys read that uh, story in Jericho's book where I think him and one of the agents, maybe Arn Anderson, uh, took it upon themselves to change? Because they did a little run of it on a few hash shows, not too many. And I think one was in Ricky Steamboat's hometown. And they called an audible and had Steamboat win it. And then Jericho and assume it was Arn or whoever it was, the agent, happily went and ate a big old plate of shit for what they did. <laughs> but they were just happy to give him the win in front of his own. That was one of oh. Jericho's books. We've been one of the well, later ones covering his WWE career. Yeah. Well, we all know Vince doesn't like people to uh, have any nice, nice memories in their hometown, do they? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Anyway. Um, we can't be having that, can we? We can't have that, no. But uh, anyway, I think it's time to wrap up this uh, pay- this um, podcast before we actually go longer than the pay-per-view itself. Um, so it just leaves me to say, Finn, it has been an absolute pleasure to uh, to speak to you once more and get your insight onto this in this show and, and this podcast. Just um, tell, tell everyone listening just where they can get hold of... Uh, the name of your podcast, where they can get hold of it, and uh, if you, you know your social media and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I would love to come back someday if you want me on again. If you're having an open again. invitation, you sir have the key to because WCW. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, yeah, they can. Uh, we do the podcast for Inside the Ropes each week, which is on Podomatic. So uh, check that out. It's called the Power Slam Podcast. I do that with Kenny McIntosh for Inside the Ropes. Obviously, I write for WrestleTalk magazine. Please check that out. Um, There's my three books. As I said earlier, Pro Wrestling Through the Power Slam Years, Power Slam Interviews Volume 1 and Volume 2. If you want to know a little bit more about them, uh, go to my website, which is finleymartin.co.uk. The books are available on Amazon uh, and on iBooks and on Kobo, so you'll find them on there. So, And on my social media, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at at finleymartin. Fantastic. Finn, thank you so much for joining us. It has been an absolute pleasure, and uh, best of luck with uh, I was going to say best luck with your future endeavours. That's terrible. That sounds like... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> You're fired. <laughs> let me, I'll let me start that one time. again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I look forward to uh, podcasting with you again someday. <laughs> Finn, thank you ever so much for coming. It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, best of luck with all of your projects. That just leaves me to say on behalf of my co-host, Liam Hatt, this is the Twisted Genius. Dean Ayers saying thanks for joining us and we'll see you ringside.